tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800 938 007, our free phone number. Won't cost you to make a call. Emma is producing it today. Coming up on the show, the Galway Fire and its impact on the planned accommodation for asylum seekers has sparked various reactions now, reflecting, I suppose, the ongoing issues surrounding immigration and housing in Ireland. Additionally, on the show this morning, other topics, uh, including the inadequacy of the transport system. We'll be speaking about that in just a, a little while. We have global politics with Thomas Conway, interior design, conspiracy theories with Ali, and we'll have legal matters as well. So all of that and much, much more on the way. And uh, you can text and WhatsApp 083 311 You can email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Let's look at the front pages of some of your newspapers today, the Irish Daily Mail. And their main story that there's been four suspected arson attacks across the country in the past month by people targeting centres for refugees or asylum seekers as Gardaí and politicians fear an escalation of violence this Christmas. The Irish Times and uh, again their lead story, um, the fire which gutted most, much of that historic uh, Galway Hotel earmarked for asylum seekers. Um, was uh, the work of a local person, the Gardaí believed at this point. Now the blaze which uh, broke out at the Ross Lake uh, House Hotel in Ross Cahill near uh, Uchtarard on uh, Saturday night is being treated uh, by the Gardaí as arson. Also on the Times today, Mary Robinson has said that the US President Joe Biden's support for Israel's action in Gaza is losing him respect all over the world. Tipperary story on the front of the Irish Times as well, the billionaire businessman John Magnier and uh, his son, John Paul, uh, delivered two brown envelopes with uh, 50,000 uh, euro in cash to a farmer to expedite uh, the sale of a farmland, according to court documents. Uh, let's move on to the Irish Examiner. And uh, again, their lead story around hate and asylum seekers and accommodation and all of that. Uh, their headline there, Fear of Rising Threat of Hate Groups. And we'll be speaking about this on the programme a little bit uh, later. Also, a new investigation into the death of the 16-year-old girl last year at University Hospital in Limerick has been ordered by the chief executive of the HSE. And again, that story is very worrying for the parents of young children because parents of little children have been urged to be aware of the warning signs of the illness uh, RSV, because cases remain very, very high indeed. And cases of flu are surging as well, we believe. Uh, right across the newspapers as well uh, today, that story that Pope Francis has formally approved allowing priests to bless same-sex couples. And finally, a look at the Independent, and it's dominated by a photograph of a very happy-looking former RTE broadcaster, Ryan Tuberty, as he reads a, a story to pupils Scarlett Wilson and Max uh, Cranny both uh, aged seven from Rampark National School in uh, County Louth. Uh, after uh, the school won a competition encouraging schools to tell the story of their sustainability efforts. But it's a lovely, lovely photograph there. Their main story, uh, anger among thousands of households as they face waiting until the new year before the first 
150 euro electricity credit is applied to their bills. So that's a look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. Do you want to make comment on any of that? And again, it's 083 311 for your texts and WhatsApp. Now, one of our listeners, Teresa, Uh, raised concerns about the inadequacy of the transport system in this country, particularly for those who do not have access to a car. And she joins me now. Teresa, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Dalton. Good to talk to you today. You think we need to overhaul the transport system in in the country, Teresa? Oh, absolutely, Fran. I'm really concerned about people in rural Ireland in particular. Yeah. You know, they they haven't got the means, the ways and means to get to a local town and they rely on probably one bus in the week to get them in, maybe on a Friday. And that's the only uh, form of transport to have. And your concerns, Teresa, is it about then? I mean, obviously there will be isolation and loneliness and the like. Is that, is that part of your concern? Yes, absolutely, friend. That, that's a big worry, yeah. yeah. What is going on here, do you think? I mean, is it a case that rural Ireland, again, forgotten about older people, forgotten about, you think? Oh, I think so, I think so. I mean, why, friend, why give them a bus pass when they clearly can't even get access to a local town to use their local transport? Hmm. And what what about the link service, Teresa? Isn't that that doing some great work? link services, new ones, I think, going out to Ballycommon and Romanier, but mm. that's not enough, friend. Mm. That's not enough. That doesn't cover the whole country. Do you know what I mean? And what what's your own experience of this, Teresa? What, what are people telling you? Right. From what I'm... The feedback that I'm getting right across is you get to... We'll, we'll say, for instance, you, maybe you, you want to go to County Leash, okay? Yes. And you might get as far as Ross Gray. And when you get to Ross Gray on your local link bus, you have to wait maybe another hour or two. There's no connection for at least an hour or two to get oh, to where you want to go. I see what you mean. So the times don't match yeah, up the in times some way. don't match up. And there is a safety issue as well, friend, because if you're going on a bus, we'll say late evening, I mean, it's very unsafe to be hanging around waiting for an, an, another bus. Do you know what I mean? Of course it is. And if the weather is bad in particular, what do you do, I suppose? Yeah, there's a safety issue attached to it as well. It's not just the actual transport. There's a safety issue as well there, you know? Yeah. And is this older people or is it just in general trying to get transport? I think it's in general. I I personally think it's it's right right across. Yeah. 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 Was it better better at any other time, Teresa? Uh, I can't say it was better. Yeah. Well, it, it, it certainly needs improvement. It def- it, this has been going on for too long. It needs improvement. People are forgotten about. It's, not, it's just not acceptable anymore. So what would you do? Would you start with trying to match up timetables in some way? Yes, I would. I, I would, definitely, because obviously they haven't done their research when they put these buses on the road because they're not matching up. When you get off a bus, you should be able to get onto another bus within a few minutes, never mind waiting for two, maybe an hour or two. Yeah, and that, that's your own experience, is it, Teresa? No, and say if you want to go, we'll, we'll say another example, friend. If you want to go to, say I want to go to Cork Airport, we'll say, and I'm not a driver, right? Yeah. I'd have to get the tourists first to get to Cork Airport, to get a, a transfer. So you'd have to get, where, where, can I ask where you're living, Teresa? Nina. 
Nina. Okay. So you'd have to get a bus from Nina. I have to get a bus from Nina to get myself, to get myself into Turles, yes. Into Turles. And then you'd, is it another bus or would you go on the train then? Uh, whichever, whichever. Whichever one's available, yeah. But it's the same with Carlo. If you want to go to Carlo, you've got to get a train to Dublin and then you've got to transfer again. To get it's to Carlo? Yeah, I think it's all transferred. You have to transfer from one to the other. There's no connection. There's no proper connection. You, it's a, it's a waiting game. So you don't have a car yourself? No, and uh, most of my friends don't drive. Right. As well. So it's not everybody that has a car friend. Of you course, know yes. And some people, as they get older, they mightn't be able to continue driving. I suppose. So exactly. That's, exactly. Yeah. And I think like when they have a bus pass, they should be able to use it. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. But you see, we're all being encouraged now to use public transport. I mean, yeah, but, but there's not enough. There's not enough buses on the road. And another issue as well with, with when you do get public transport, for especially for elderly people, I find is that they have to go up a, a, a norm a lot of steps. Of course, yes. And yeah. that's another problem because unless you have a family member with you, well, then that's an impossibility. And the, and the bus driver today is not going to get down and give you a hand. Well, but he's he's kind of isolated in that booth in 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 the bus now, isn't it? It's not like, it's not easy to get out of there. Yeah. I, I watched people struggling getting up steps and everything. It's awful. It really is. They should be at the same level as 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 the person getting up. You know, the buses. You yeah. should be able to just walk on, like the local link. The local link, you can do that. You can just walk on. Uh, you, you have no steps, which is great. Well, they're they're smaller buses, I suppose, aren't they? They're yeah. they're like mini buses. They're, I suppose. They're, the buses should be like the city buses, really, so that you can just walk on, especially with kids and families and yeah. buggies and what have you. Are, are you living in the town or are you outside the town, Teresa? I'm living on the outskirts of the town, so we'll say I'm 15 minutes into the town. Wow, okay, okay. So for you okay. to get in there, you're depending on public transport then? I'm depending on public transport. Yeah. Exactly. And like, I mean, you should be, as uh, you were saying, like, you should be able to connect within a few minutes. You should have to wait for an hour or two for a bus get off a bus away another couple of hours. It's unsafe. As I said before, it's unsafe as well. Yeah, sure. We, we hear it on the programme all the time, Teresa, particularly about the train timetables, the people trying to get to work in cities. It just doesn't work out for them because no. the times are wrong. Yeah, the times are all over the place, friend. They just don't... They haven't done the research, basically. I don't know what they're doing, to be honest with you. Yeah. They're matching up anyway. What, know, no what are your thoughts about the Ireland of today, Teresa? What, what oh, are you... The Ireland of today has changed uh, big time. It's not the Ireland I knew. Is it not? Not at all. Not at all. Because I find community spirit has, has dwindled, to be honest with you. Do you think so? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think community spirit people should really, you know, look after each other and try and help each other as much as they can. But that's, that's not... I think COVID did a lot of harm, Fran, there, you know, as well. Do you? Because do you remember at the time we were talking about community spirit and people were helping one another out again? But you, you say it has harmed community spirit, has it? Well, I don't know. People have changed since since we had well, since we've been through COVID. Like um, you, you wouldn't see people from one into the one end of the year to the next, really. To be honest with you, if you're not out and about, you're not going to see them and not going to hear from them. And was it very different, Teresa? Before COVID? No, well, I'm just thinking, you know, years ago in terms of people looking out for each other and community oh, spirit. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the Ireland I grew up in was totally different, totally different. But I suppose that's the way things have gone now, isn't it? It's totally different now. You know, I, I, I can't. 
I can't figure it out, but it's it's changed. It's really, I think it's lost its identity, to be quite honest, which Ireland on the whole. Do you think so? I think so, yeah. I think so, yeah. I think there's a lot of greed out there today, to be honest. So you know, it's, it's not the we knew. So it's very, very different, do you think? Oh, very different, friend. Very different. Yeah, very different. It's sad, really, isn't it? Yeah, there's certainly aspects of it that are very sad and we seem to be at odds with each other as well, which is such a pity, you know. I mean, people used to check on each other and everything and, and help each other out. That's all. That's You don't see very much of that lately, you know. That's the window quite a bit, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I know from personally, personally myself, when talking to other people, that's, that's how I know I get the feedback, you know. Of course. And and then I suppose if people are living on their own in rural areas, they're particularly isolated then if there's not that community spirit, I suppose. It's an awful thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know. Are you are you Christmassy, Teresa? Are you looking forward to it? Oh, I love Christmas, of course I do. Um, before I forget, actually, I met a lovely gentleman, uh, I think it was last week, and he was asking about you. Was he indeed? Um, from Woodford in Galway, friend. Where, where was it, Teresa? I think he said Woodford. Oh, Woodford? very good. Right, yeah. And um, would you believe he's got the same surname as my dad? Go on. My God. In fact, his, his whole, his name is, is the same, exact same. And I just stood there in total amazement when he told me. My God, yeah. And he loved, and by the way, he, he uh, wrote out to um, Johnny Luby. Mm. I think he was telling me a story about something to do with a donkey or something that Johnny said. <laughs> so he said you would be able to relate to that friend, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense to me. I'll, I'll get Johnny to tell that story on, on Friday, Teresa. I'll get... <laughs> and you might relate to that man as well, the man I'm talking about. I, of course. I, I, what I'll do is I'll get Emma to get the name f- from you off air. Will that be okay? Yeah, that's okay. I, I don't want to give it on air. I know actually. that. I, I understand yeah, yeah. that. I'll give it to all, uh, all fair. Is that okay? It's perfectly okay, Teresa. Look, really good to talk. And a happy Christmas to you, Teresa. And a very happy Christmas to you, friend, and all of yours as well. Right. And enjoy every bit. Put the feet up. I, I'm looking forward to it, Teresa. Bye-bye, Dot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 That's uh, Teresa there. What do you make of that? Um, public transport in rural areas. And uh, are you affected by that? You might like to, to share with us. Uh, 083 311 It's 20 past nine. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie A human rights group, Doris, has sounded the alarm over the rising threat posed by anti-migrant groups all around the country. Now, the warning comes in the wake of that blaze at the Galway Hotel, which uh, had been uh, earmarked for use as an asylum uh, centre. The Gardaí continued their investigation, but were reading this morning that they believe that uh, the blaze was the work of a local a uh, person at the Ross Lake uh, House Hotel in Roscahill on a Saturday. Now, Doris, an independent, non-profit, non-governmental organisation working to support and promote the rights of migrants in Ireland. The organisation CEO is John Lannan, who joins me now. John, good morning to you. Good morning. And thanks very much indeed for making time for us today. In the Examiner today, John, you're quoted as saying that groups like your own, like Doris, uh, have been warning about escalating violence and targeted attacks for quite a while and that the government, instead of getting ahead of this, um, that they haven't done all they should. 
Yes, indeed. I mean, first of all, it's quite appalling that we have actions like the burning of the hotel um, up in County Galway. This is essentially to stop asylum seekers from getting a place to sleep and to be safe. At the same time, we've got people who have escaped from war, from persecution, homeless on the streets in Dublin where they are extremely vulnerable or at risk from the weather, but also from attacks from, from others. Um, it's not the first time this sort of thing has happened, and yeah. this is why you've been saying this um, now again. Um, but not the first time that concerns that were being expressed by a group of people who were blocking a road or gathering outside a building have escalated to arson and violence. We've seen it happening up in Mobile in County Donegal, in, in Bruski, um, between Roscommon and Leitrim, twice, in fact, there and several other places. Um, and, and we even had a petrol bomb thrown through the front of a premises earmarked for refugees in um, Finglas um, a few weeks ago as well. So this is something that local politicians in particular need to reflect on. They need to think about this. They need to ensure that they're working constructively to ensure that communities have the services they've got, not trying to exclude people at, at this time or at any time indeed. You know what they would claim, John, is that there's so little notice of the arrival of uh, asylum seekers that there's no time to ensure that these services are in place. And this is one of the big issues, I'm sure you'd agree. No, indeed. Um, pe- people arrive um, when when they have to, when they've managed to to get out of the um, the, the situation that they're in um, risk in. Um, they arrive in Ireland, but in general terms, we we know the numbers. We know that they're um, that you know we're we're going to get you know, around 13,000 international protection applicants this year, bearing in mind that there are 100 million people forcibly displaced around the world according to the UNHCR figures. This is a tiny, tiny trickle of of numbers coming to Ireland. We do have the capacity to be able to accommodate and to look after them, but that needs action from government, particularly around the accommodation issue. We've been in a situation for the last year and a half, or indeed even more, where the Department of Children have been scrambling to find temporary or emergency accommodation and this is part of the what's, what's still happening in places like Rossacahal up in Galway but they need to be looking to the medium to long term accommodation um, provision. They need to be providing first of all um, adequate reception accommodation for international protection applicants, build the reception centres that were highlighted and identified in the white paper back in early 2021, ensure that there there is state land to to put those on and ensure that that's addressed in the short term and then look to the longer term around the provision of housing for everybody. And what you're saying is very commendable, but if we can't build sufficient housing for for our own people, so to speak, how do you think that they're going to get their heads around providing the kind of accommodation you're referencing there? So indeed, this isn't a problem that's um, unique to asylum seekers. There indeed that has been caused by asylum seekers. And this is something that communities and politicians need to bear in mind as well. There is... an accommodation crisis across the country. And as I'd mentioned, the Department of Children have done commendable work finding temporary and emergency accommodation for asylum seekers and people um, arriving from Ukraine. But the Department of Housing need to take this issue on and they need to ensure that we've adequate, affordable and available accommodation for everybody here. We we must also bear in mind that we've about 6,000 people who are in the direct provision system who have been granted their papers but 
can't find any place to live outside of the state accommodation. It's not that they don't want to leave, it's that they yes, can't. And it was acknowledged that that was not a healthy way to live in those provision centres just a few years ago. But I suppose then, you know, what happened in Ukraine has put pay to doing something about that even. Well, what happened in Ukraine and the arrival of um, so many people from, from there as a result of the war has certainly impacted, and there's, there's no doubt about that. But again, we've had um, over a year and a half now to come to grips with this. The government have done some work on refurbishment of buildings and the building of modular rapid build units, but they've only delivered about 6,000 beds from those. And that's quite shameful when you think of it in terms of the last 18 months, given the need there is for accommodation, that they haven't done better than that. Uh, Councillor Noel Thomas on this programme yesterday, I know on national radio as well, but he said basically, John, that the inn is full and we need to stop taking asylum seekers right now. I think, and again, I'm just going from what we're hearing on this programme, he is reflecting, you know, a lot of the general thinking among the population out there. And um, what, what do you say to that, John? Sadly, he's also reflecting a number of the, the myths and the tropes that are trotted out by the far right. Um, we, we're we're not full. We do have an accommodation crisis here and that needs to be addressed regardless of whether people arrive to seek international protection here or not. But the um, everybody's got to remember as well that we've got obligations here. We've got legal obligations under the International Protection Act. Everybody has a right to claim asylum. Um, in Ireland or indeed in, in any other country. We've also got moral obligations here. You know, we've, we've been um, able as an Irish people to travel the length and breadth of the world. We've started our lives, we've started careers, we've settled down, we've raised families. So I think now as we approach Christmas and we reflect on the fact that, you know, pe- people who will be celebrating that feast will be remembering how the the Holy Family of Jesus and, um, and and his parents and Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt as refugees, that we need to be looking at finding the ways to ensure that we meet the basic needs of people who come here seeking protection rather than trying to exclude them. And in recent times, Leo Varadkar has come out and spoke about capacity. Indeed, the Tanish has come out and spoken uh, about that as well. So there is a general thinking in the government somewhere that capacity were either at it or were uh, uh, approaching it. I'm just wondering what you believe about that. Do you believe that it should be open borders in terms of how many we take in, John? (laughs) Well, this idea of an open border, as Leo Varadkar himself has has said, is is um, is is a, is a myth that that doesn't exist. We don't have open borders when it comes to people seeking international protection. Here, we have a well. Um, founded system based on the International Protection Act. We have an International Protection Office that documents every individual that comes seeking protection and um, and, and, and processes those applications. There, there are flaws in that Act and we have highlighted those over the years, particularly for example around family reunification and who can join their family when um, they, they do get refugee status here. But 
we do have a process there. Nobody is calling for open borders. What we're calling for is for Ireland to uphold its obligations under that International Protection Act and also under what's called the, Refu- mm. the Reception Conditions Directive where we are obliged to meet the basic needs of people who arrive. We, we found the government, we, we have sadly got people, who, um, asylum seekers who are on the streets, um, homeless and at risk right now. When that happened earlier in the year, the government were found to be in breach of their obligations um, on, under that mm. directive. And can I be devil's advocate to some some degree here, John, and ask you, I mean, if if there is a, a small community, as in the case of Ross Cahill, 70 young men, single men, arriving into that community, and I would put it to you that wherever they might come from, even if they came from Dublin down... There would be concerns about... Can you understand maybe local concerns from the most decent of people? Well, you know, we, we've had stag parties. We have football teams who, who um, visit. Um, we've had rugby teams. We have um, guests staying in hotels. Um, you know, and, and that's something that's generally welcomed by communities. Um, I, I don't see why the fact that they might have escaped from a war... Um, zone or, or from from persecution and are applying for international protection mm. here should be significant. You well, know, well, the issue talking, there would be that if they if they are coming from a war torn area, surely there's trauma involved. They need services like mental health services. They and, they need that kind of backup, John. And this is why we need to be providing the services for everybody here. When it comes to mental health, when it comes to school places, when it comes to GP access, when it comes to ensuring that everybody has the basic services and have their needs met. We need politicians to be working to ensure that those services are available for all rather than trying to exclude some people from the communities because that's not going to provide the services. The communities who exclude and who do not provide accommodation or welcome in asylum seekers are still going to be without the services if they don't work towards ensuring that they get them. And and often, you know, we'd have to say, and we've seen this around Ireland in many cases, where the the arrival of additional people into community can be an opportunity to get better services. So rather than looking at it negatively, I think it's time we started to look at these things positively and constructively. John, it was very good of you to make time for us today, and thank you for that. And a happy Christmas to you and your family. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And to you too. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye Bye-bye. You. Now, that is the CEO of the organisation, Doris there. His name is John Lennon. We'll take a break back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now it's become a tradition that my friend and broadcaster Mirish Walsh will chat to me coming up to Christmas to reflect on the year that was. I'm glad to see he's in studio with me this morning. Good morning to you, Mirish. Morning, Fran. Now it uh, seems the reflection this year is far more comprehensive than, than previous years um, but you're beginning with a dedication and an important one as well aren't you? Yeah I suppose none of us will ever forget where we heard the news about Luke McSweeney, Grace McSweeney Nicole Murphy and Zoe Coffey on the, who died tragically yeah. on the 25th of August um, and it sort of puts everything in perspective really does it not? It does, it does I think it's something that's going to live with all of us there's going to be a little bit of a shadow over Clan Mel mm. for a long, long, long time. But um, there's a great song by Van Morrison called Where Angels Dwell on mm. the Other Side. And I'd like to think. Yeah. That's where they're gone. It's um, it, it, like great 
tragedy and uh, I can't even begin to think how the families are dealing with this, particularly with this milestone of, of Christmas. But what a community. Oh, I mean, I, I said that in this, you know, it's for people who don't know it very quickly, it's just I have one line, the tragedy, the community, whatever. Mm. Yeah, the community came together in a way that was probably unimaginable. But again, when you sit back and you think about the kindness of people, I mean, your previous conversation was about, you know, a very kind of tricky situation that's developing in the country. I'm not getting into that. But I, I always believe that the, the one thing about Irish people, Fran, there's a kindness of spirit, there's a generosity, there is a decency that we don't we don't recognise mm. enough. And we always seem to talk about the, the, the bad the stuff. And the yeah. negatives. Yeah. And look, there's yeah. a lot, there is an awful lot of it out there. But And I have to say as well, as well as the community, I mean... Michael O'Loughlin, Principal of the Prez, and Anne McGrath, I wouldn't know Anne personally. Michael is a good old buddy of mine going back to years. And I just, I was talking to Michael on Saturday and I said, look, Mike, you outdid yourself. Mm. Because mm. they didn't teach him how to cope with this in St. Pat's or Mary I. Because no, sure. no one could, you know. Yeah. And as you know, I'm, whatever your religious beliefs are, mm. whether they're Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Jew, whatever it is, or like myself, none at all, I have to say, Michael Toomey was just... Father Father Michael, of course, yeah. 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 I, I call him the pastoral <laughs> care. Uh, very good, yeah. He was excellent to me, yeah. to uh, my son who knew them, my daughter who's very, who's very friendly with David McSweeney, the mm. brother, mm. and to all their friends. He was just... And even by picking the, the song Rise Up, I'd never heard that mm. song because... I hadn't either. Really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we're a bit, yeah. bit out of touch, <laughs> just, just a smidgen. Yeah. But, but, and still it was the perfect song, wasn't it? You know? Fran, I'd say it is to yeah. you. I, I don't think anybody has a better knowledge of music than you. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no, I mean yeah. that. I don't think you would have... No, no, not at all. No, you, and I just... I said that to him, and I, and I think I finished with, you know, the, the whole piece. It's, on, it's online on the tip... Tipperary GA webpage, thanks, Colin. Mm. But I was in the church for the McSweeney's funeral because I know their, I know their dad Paul, um, quite well. And when Bridget McSweeney finished by saying, "Leave your sorrow behind here today, and make the world a better place," could be how powerful, you know. And where that came from, how she got the strength to say that, but as you say, how powerful. Yeah. And I, I, I think. To me, I, I was sitting in I was sitting in the back of the church, and I just said in my own mind, I said, "How in God's name? Where did that?" And it's just powerful and humility, dignity, and the one thing that was amazing about that statement, Fran, it finally is that it wasn't about her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> in, in, incredible, isn't it? Just generosity of spirit, I suppose, as well as everything else. Uh, just a short time. After that tragedy, we had another tragedy yeah, in in, in, in as Cashel, well in Cashel, in your and, and you, you you're remembering them, that family as well. I think the image of Tom Young, Tom O'Reilly yeah. with the thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah, I think I it's going to live with me, forever because, a young boy, his life ahead of him, mm. three years of age, like any young lad, you know. I don't I don't remember being three, you know, but that kind of thumbs up, you know, and a great... Positivity and yeah, exuberance and all yeah, of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And to be taken away from him in the blink of an eye, mm. along with his grandparents, Thomas and Bridget O'Reilly. And, you know, can I just say something about those two, those two tragic accidents, Fran? It's not for me 
or you or anybody else to say, I wonder how the accident happened. Mm. It doesn't matter. Mm. That's for other people to... Of course, of course. The, the yeah. problem is, is that we have to, and we did as a community, we have to come together with these people and support them in whatever way we can at all. Because there are no words. Mm. Mm. Maybe if I was a fantastic songwriter or I was a Seamus Heaney or I was a great painter, maybe I could express it that way. Yes. But I, I, but I think the way the communities did it, which was that they were just there for people. Yeah. I mean, that that is the response. Yeah, it? I mean, like my father used to say to me, the biggest thing you can give anyone and the most expensive thing is, is time. Yeah. And he said, my father used to say to me, he said, somebody will, somebody will go through life, people will actually hand you back money, believe it or not, he said. He said, the album that you loan to people, he said, some people will hand it back to you, yeah. the book. He said, they'll never hand back an act of kindness. Yeah. Yeah, that and, to me is the only thing. Well, that, that's that's yeah. for sure. I'll, I'll, I'll let me allow you to drive this because there's so much here <laughs> that, that we want to. Where, where do we go from there now, Marish? I, I, there's one person I want to really pick out of this, and that is Carrie Atchison. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, iconic, really. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, Carrie was a huge part of my life. I have no problem saying it. I, I grew up in a, in a family that was stitched into Fianna Fáil, but but Carrie was part of that family. But I I honestly believe that she was a. There's two people, herself and Tony Brazen. But she she was a fantastic character. But she was a really really uh, good public representative irrespective of your politics mm. you know the way politics is well you know better than anybody doing this show the way politics has become so divided yeah. right and everybody takes just a, a, a position that they just won't budge on Carrie could yes. right she could she could move and the one thing about Carrie was Carrie understood poverty because she could see it, mm. she smelt it, she felt it, and she understood what what people's needs were. Now, whether you whether you voted for her or not, that's not that's not my point. It's like Richie Malloy was mm. fantastic this year as a mayor, mm. and Carrie was brilliant. The other person is Tony Brosnan, who was who was um, the boss manager of the credit union. Tony had a social conscience. He under he he, he understood the needs of others, and he, he he understood what, like John Hume said about the credit union what the access to money he gave access to money when people couldn't get yeah. it where they weren't even allowed in to deliver a letter to the bank let's be honest about it Tony understood to give credit to people to get them over the hump and I can t and credit unions and I've, I've this saying I keep saying I've said it on Ronan show I keep saying there are there are only two institutions standing in this country the GEA and the credit unions yes and everyone should have a credit union again. Well, that, that, that's that's for sure. Um, which, what, what else uh, do you want to have a look at? Um, I suppose I, I, I can't, like, you know, just uh, to bring it into, suppose, I suppose, sport or mm. music or, or, or mm. whatever, you know, um, I, I, uh, Michael Parkinson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was my hero. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember the Parky shows from the seventies and the, that that conversation, and when I did my own conversations programs here, I mean, I, I, I unashamedly, no problems, <laughs> I cogged him to use a, a school term. He he was the guy that I loved as a because it yeah. was about the person he was interviewing. Well, that was the secret, though, wasn't it? It yeah. was about the other person was the yeah. star, yeah, whoever yeah. they were. Yeah, yeah, and I remember I was just talking to to, to Shea, um 
she uh, shares in here a while ago and I remember I, I was on one Saturday and he was asking me about you know me and I said you know I'm out, who, who who I'd love to interview I said I'd love to interview Michael Parkinson you know just to, you know to spin it I mm. suppose the the death of Matthew Perry yeah. you know we all grew up with friends or well not grew up with it but some of us did mm. others didn't you know that was very sad I think you know because he'd written such a great book and he had seemed to gotten over the yes over yeah. his demons, you know what I mean? Uh, Robbie Robertson, yeah. great singer-songwriter. I mean, I mean, the band were just a, you know, I mean, when you think about it, and, and the, 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 the Last Waltz, that iconic oh, movie. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just a, a, a brilliant a brilliant thing. And, of course, Sinatra called him the best singer in the business, mm. Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, as I said to you, if David Bowie can die... And if Tony Bennett can die, if, they, if they're not allowed to live forever, Fran, there's none of us getting out of here. So, but wasn't it brilliant to see Tony Bennett sing brilliantly right up to close, yes. close, close to the end, which was incredible. Yeah, and that, and that, that album with Duet oh, CD, yeah, and yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. It it was was Lady Gaga and the like. Yeah, yeah was, and it was just it was just amazing. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose we can pass without talking the recent deaths of Shane McGowan mm-hmm. and Sinead O'Connor. And I mean, I, I I would I would argue that Shane we we didn't see a fiftieth. Of what we should have seen is Shane McGowan. Yeah, in terms of his talent, was yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I I wrote down. I didn't write him down here, but I, for somebody, I wrote down about six to eight fantastic songs that he wrote. Yes. And I'm thinking to myself, could you imagine if his lifestyle wasn't what it was? Right. What he could have written. And uh, do you think the addictions held him back? Yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I do. I mean, I remember hearing Rainy Night of Soho uh, when it came out first. I was I was in college and. I, I'll fight you in this studio to say Stardust is the greatest love song ever written, mm, right? Mm. And I will equally say to you that the only person who can sing it is Nat King Cole, mm, right? Mm. But the greatest, the greatest love song after is Rain Night in Soho. But where I make the distinction, the greatest line in any love song is "You're the measure of my dreams." Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. And that's on my wedding ring. Is it indeed? Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And that song for me, uh, as someone who has battled. Who has had an unhealthy, who had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? That line. Sometimes I wake up with the ginger lady by my side. That's yeah, that's the old whiskey. Yeah, you know, and it's brilliant. Yeah, but we didn't see the best. And, of them. and and you say we didn't see the best of them, and possibly because of the drinking and and the like. Some people would argue that the addiction and the drinking and those lows generated some of. Of the, course, and I, I, you know. you know, I think the creative mind is a strange one. I, I don't have a great creative mind myself, but obviously, I mean, some, I mean, if you if you think of um, uh, one of the Beatles albums, um, was it? Oh, I can't. I, I, Let it be. I mm. think it was. You know, and when they went out to India, and oh, yes. it's Sgt. Peppers. Yes. Sorry, Lonely yeah. Heart Club. I mean, they don't remember recording that. <laughs> I yeah. mean, let's be like we're all adults here. I mean, they don't they don't remember recording that because they were they were on various types of medication. Let's yes. say. and it does. But I I I do think that with in Shane's case, whilst it can be creative, I think it can become an impediment. Yes, I yeah. I, I think it can. Mick, Mick Hanley said that to me that you know the fertile period of the, those years in the nineteen eighties, and after that, then you'd yeah. You'd I mean, I, the only thing I want written on 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 my tombstone is, um, you know. Their hearts in Tipperary, wherever they, wherever they go. 
I know. I was delighted to see that you highlighted Johnny Fiend's uh, passing yeah. as well because he wasn't included when people listed off, you know, Christy, yeah. Christy and Sinead and, and yeah. Shane, obviously. But Johnny Fiend was inspirational yeah, to well, so many of us. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, it's Johnny Fiend and Horse Lips. Lips, yeah. and, and one thing I was glad to hear, I heard a re- an interview recently with Eamon Carr. Yes, uh, of course again, of course. Yeah, we lost Jim, Jim Lockhart yeah. a couple of years ago. He said, that's it. No money will. We can't. Johnny Fien was horseless. Yes. When we think of Barry Fien, Barry Devlin, we yeah. think of Eamon Carr. But Johnny Fien, I mean, Johnny Fien wrote Trouble with a Capital yeah. T. Yeah. And he, he was a fan. I mean, horseless were just in the 70s. They were a breath of fresh air. Yes. They fused that sort of... And Rock. a wonderful guitar player he was. Oh, he was super. Great, and and great you, you know the you know the acoustic album they brought out about yeah. two thousand three mm. four. Mm. I mean that mm. that's that's burning house stuff. Yeah, you know when the house is burning, you go back in for that one. You know, <laughs> super. Yeah, you you mentioned lots more about about music as well. But I, again, I was delighted that you 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 picked out Jonathan Irwin's death because. What a man! Like what a story and what a yeah. I, I just one of those. I'm I'm not sure. You know, when I, when I heard it, I kind of, I kind of went, this is going to go under the radar. Mm, mm. You know, and uh, it just sort of like, you know, when a few sorry one or two people said to me that they hadn't realised Gordon Lightfoot had died, mm, mm. and I said, Do you know, Jonathan Irwin died as well. And they said, who's Jonathan Irwin? Wow. And I just, there's something sad about that. Yeah. It, it, the J- Jack and Jill Foundation, of course. And no, he, no, I'm just going to say, no, yeah. I, I'm just, I'm yeah. just going to just, and I'm just going to say like that, he died recently, I know. Mm. I didn't see it on the news, Fran. Wow. I, did, I didn't hear it on the news. Did you not? No, wow. my wife said it to me, I'm not on social media, my wife said it to me on, on Twitter. And I said, you know, Janet Nerwin died as well. He said, Janet Nerwin. And I said, you've no idea what that man has done yeah. for countless with the Jack and Jill Foundation. The, the, mm. the comfort that he has given so sure. many children. And and when you consider his own personal tragedy. Oh, absolutely, well, you, absolutely. You, you know, was. Yeah. He was a guest here lots of times. And what I loved about him was no matter how many times he came on, uh, whereas he was respectful, he was humble, and he was always uh, delighted to get the spot. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, after all the years, we're yeah. delighted to have him. Even, yeah. You know, I mean, but. like, yeah, it, that was uh, to me that, and that's only in the last couple of weeks. And mm. I, look, as I said, I didn't read it. On, I didn't hear it on the news. I didn't hear yes, it on the news. I know. And uh, the other, and you mentioned him as well, the wonderful philanthropist uh, Chuck Feeney. Yeah. His death went under the radar mm. because, of course, it happened around the same time as Shane McGowan as well. But what he did for this country, uh, you know, even if you leave his global philanthropy out, yeah. what he did for Ireland was incredible. Well, I, I heard an interview with him many, many years ago um, and it was on, on Radio Aaron with Mer- the late Marion Finucane and he basically said, I know the power of money for good and bad. Mm. Mm. He said, I know what money can do. And I think in, in terms of, uh, let's not get into the politics of Northern Ireland because that's, a, you know, but he, he understood that if the politicians can sort that bit of it out, he would do whatever he could to put money in into the north, and that's where it kind of began. He was of Irish heritage, and then he gave money to this foundation, mm. to to very various colleges all over the country. I couldn't begin to to, and I, I was actually sitting there 
oh, he did that. And yeah, yeah. that research in UCG was because of him or that medical research that they're doing in UCD, that's down to Chuck Feeney. And it wasn't the Chuck Feeney, you know, it, was, it wasn't It was called after. Yes, his he, name wasn't above the door of any of no, these places. Yeah, No, yeah. And, 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 and it wasn't that... And, and sorry, before we move on, the one thing I liked about about Chuck Feeney, again, it wasn't about him, but the other thing was, Fran, was that he, he, he spoke very plainly. Yes. You yeah. know, he didn't talk in, well, stocks, you know, yeah. I have this money, I'm not going to tell you how I earned it. It wasn't anything unscrupulous, yeah, by the of way. Course, yeah, of course. Just a businessman who made a lot of money and said, what am I going to do with this? We have two minutes left, so again, I'll leave it to you in terms of what we can actually uh, uh, fit in. Uh, uh, interesting one, just really quickly, Rick Astley in Glastonbury. I agree with you on that, funny enough, and I can't believe I'm saying this, yeah. because I, I, I would have thought of him as a musical lightweight, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah. But that performance was... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, um, Highway to Hell, where he's playing yeah. the drums. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I said, I, I roared out. You got to yeah. come in and see this. This is, this is, this is, this is unbelievable. Yeah. The, other, the other thing is, uh, and it, it sometimes he, he, he's an acquired taste on the television. But Ted Walsh retired. Oh yeah. yeah. Ah, look, yeah. come on, it's, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, it's. You know, look, he's one of those fellas that even if you're not into horse racing. You'd, you'd, you'd absolutely, um, you'd absolutely yes. listen to him. On the humorous side, the nervous breakdown is the dunk kettle round. <laughs> I was just looking at it here, and I'm in complete agreement with you on that. I, only last week I got lost on it again and ended up well, going down the tunnel when I wanted to go into the city. Well, my, well, my wife's from Cork. Yes. My son is in college in Cork. I've seen Glanmire more times in the last, <laughs> in the last three. What is it about as well? So so many so many others. But can I can I if you don't mind? Yeah. I have to talk to you about something you said in here about loyalty. Yeah. W- would you explain that to me? Because you you pointed that out. Uh, is it that there's a lack of loyalty now? Um, well, uh, I uh, people who know me that there was, you know, in sport. I think there's no loyalty in sport. Yeah. Um, I think people can. Uh, I think th- that's where that's where it comes from. I, I I don't want to get into the ins and outs of that particular thing because um, I would be breaking a confidence. But it just in general, hmm. I think the country as a people, whilst we can come together in tragedy and all that, and it's fantastic, it's fantastic. But do we know our neighbours? Hmm. Are we loyal to our friends? Are we loyal to our family? Do we actually kind of say, right, no, this isn't about me. I have to put that other person first. Um, and I, I, you know, again, I was raised in a house where you have to be kind and have to be loyal. loyal. And I just see the loyalty. I just see it moving out of, out of, out of, um, out of society, Fran. And oh, what a shame that is. Because you're such a, a sports contributor and pundit and broadcaster. Hurler, footballer, would you give us those two names? Uh, David Clifford and Aaron Gillan. Yes. And Aaron Gillan. Yes. David Clifford, what he did on the day of the Munster final, his mother had died of cancer the day before and to do that. And can I just say one local thing? Yeah. I was at a match, Tom Celtic versus Cashel, and a great dart player that I know was playing centre half for um, Tom Celtic, Jake Forrest, he's known as Fozzie, right? He had an overhead kick that day, and if anyone remembers the iconic Wayne Rooney goal kick, overhead kick, it was better than that. Had it had it gone in, had it gone in, I'd say he'd be still running up the cash road. <laughs> it was, but do you know what it was? It was there was there was two things about it. It was at a junior soccer match 
if you were there, you saw it. If you if you weren't there, you didn't see it. But to, he's 19 years of age. To see a young fella, that's what I call him, a young fella, having the cojones to try it. Yeah. And having the... It was great to see a young fella try it. And, you know, try and execute it. And he, he almost did it. And it was fantastic. It was absolutely like, fantastic. Like the last thing I'll say to you is... My, Darren McCormack, he's one of our own from Nina. You know, he, he was nominated for that movie with um, uh, Emma Thompson. Mm. And he got the BAFTA nomination, I think, 2024. Do you think so? Yeah, I hope so, Frank. Are these your own words? Leave your sorrow behind you here no, today in Brexit? that's no. Bridget McSween. It's a Bridget's words. Okay, well, uh, by the way, if people want to read the thing in its entirety, where is it? It's uh, Jonathan Collin contacted me. He said, yeah. could I put it up on the GEA webpage? Yeah. And I said, you can. The thing about it is, I just say it to some people very, 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 very quickly before you go, and I know you have to go over to Pat, and he doesn't like to be held up. <laughs> <laughs> right? He's threatening us. Yeah, man. right. Is that some of it is personal, like the dog Bell, yeah, it was my aunt's dog, died, right? Some of it is Clan Mel, some of it is Tipperary, some of it is national, and some of it is global. My biggest fear for 2024 is President Donald Trump. My biggest hope is always Tipperary. It's the hope that kills you, Fran, yeah. but it's there. And also, he's one of our own, as I said, Darren McCormack. I think he could be there. Mighty stuff. A happy Christmas to you and your you family, too, Murray. All, always a pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. News and information's on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Uh, welcome back to the second hour of uh, Tip Today, 1800 the free phone number. Uh, you can text to WhatsApp 0833113311 or indeed you can email us at any time at all. That's tip today at tipfm.com. Uh, now, Brendan was on to us and he says, great to hear a bit of balance today after yesterday's show attempted to blame asylum seekers for provoking the arson attack in Galway. Now, uh, Brendan is making reference there to my chat with John Lennon from the uh, Human Rights Group, uh, Doris. But could I just take him up on what he said there? Um, yesterday's show attempted to blame asylum seekers for provoking the arson attack. I think you, Brendan, were behind that uh, outpouring on uh, Twitter last night as well, which again blamed the show for doing that. You mustn't have been listening or you were half listening or somebody told you about the show. Because every chat I had on the programme yesterday was prefaced by everybody condemning what happened by way of that hotel being burned down. You know, so every single item yesterday was prefaced by that. And, uh, you know, I mean, to make that claim is extremely serious. And I hope, Brendan, um, you'll take that back now that you know the full facts, you know. But, uh, um, Tipperary University Hospital in uh, Clonmel is experiencing overcrowding in the emergency department due to increased numbers of patients. Hospital management advising people to only go to the emergency department in genuine emergencies and to consult a GP or out of out of our service first. I wonder, like, if, if you're really unwell, how do you decide, you know, is the chest pain I'm experiencing now, is that a genuine emergency? 
Or will I hang around and see if you can see the GP or an out-of-hour service, I wonder. But anyway, priority treatment, they tell us, will be given to seriously injured or ill individuals. One of our, our listeners, Ella, was in touch and joins me now. Ella, good morning to you. Morning, friend. How are you? I'm very well indeed. But more importantly, how are you, Ella? And what what has been your experience of the of the health service? Um, do you know what, Fran? It's fine and well for the hospital to ask us not to turn up if we're sick or whatever. You know, in the ideal world, if you could get into your doctor or get them to answer the phone, and this is across the country, this is going on. You know, I myself have had experience of making 21 phone calls in a couple of hours to try and get my doctor to answer the phone. Nobody picking. Sometimes the phone is picked up. It's held out for about 15 seconds. I can hear the conversations going on in the office and then the phone is put down again. And that's been your your experience. Uh, uh, and uh, what, what excuse... Do you finally get through and what excuse are you giving, giving well, about that? times I've landed in to be told, oh, sorry, you can't land in, you have to make a phone call. And I said, I have 21 and nobody answered. Uh, another time I was told, oh, you can't come in. And I said, no, I did. I phoned and, oh, we're having a problem with the phone lines. And, and I said it to them. I said, there is no problem with the phone lines. I can tell you exactly what conversation took place here at 11 o'clock this morning because I was listening to it. And then they just put the phone down. So... Like, if you're, if you're a patient, like, I'm a diabetic fan, and I also have um, a, a blood disease that needs attention, constant, you know, monitoring. Yeah. So, like, I don't go in willy-nilly with a head cold. If I have a head cold, I'm not stupid. I tweet it. But, like, our health, our, our, our health services, you know, with the doctors, with Shannon Doc, yeah, I know they're all under pressure. I do get that. But there are genuine cases with people that need treatment like i'm i yesterday i gave the whole day in uhl in limerick and well, I the whole not, day Ella. i well i was the whole day i was there at half nine i didn't get out till three o'clock right uh, because it was the last monday clinic uh, before christmas so it was bedlam now i didn't care fan because i wasn't rushing home to collect mm. children yeah to, do you know what i mean but it was like it was like a monster final day in Curlis on the corridors with people walk and walk and walk and being pushed here. Okay. At one stage, I had my blood done and I was asked, you know, because marked on, on my bag for the blood was urgent. Yeah. And the girl that did the blood, lovely, lovely girl, said to me, do you want to drop up the blood to yourself because they'll be quicker? I said, I won't because I haven't a clue where I'm going. Mm. But like, you know, it's, like I yesterday I was looking at elderly people there, you know, left on their own. Mm. Will, will you describe? Will you describe it to me, Ella? Because thankfully I haven't witnessed it. So just describe to me what you saw there. Yesterday, all you can see is, and I mean, first of all, friend, to go to the the, the UHL in Limerick, and they have masses of car parks, masses of them. There is, if you get to that hospital at half nine, so my appointment would be half nine in the morning. I actually have to park in the shopping centre, which is a kilometre and a half away because I've, 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 I've actually walked it, right? There is no, you can't get in park there. There's hundreds. That hospital is not able to cope with the catchment area that it's covering. And even though they've loads of car parks, like, I've given 50 minutes trying to get a parking space there. Now I don't even bother. I just park in the shopping centre and I leg it up. But if you're somebody elderly, yeah, 
they're not going to be able to leg it up the, the street the way I am. And can can you see, I mean, I, I know there's going to be new beds available there, you know, at some stage or other of next next year and the like, but it, it doesn't seem that that's near enough to cope with what's happening down there. Fran, listen, we never had as many people in our country, never. And we have little hospitals. The hospitals we had, they closed it. I had, I don't know what you call it, the fortune or the misfortune to have to use casual hospitals 15 times throughout my life. Mm. I never once came out of casual hospitals without feeling, God, do you know what? I got the best possible care and treatment there. Yeah. That hospital is no longer available to, to the public going, you know, like you. Yeah. So now we're stopped. Well, they do certain we're, services there, but but you're right, not, not emergency, you know, emergency like, services. Yeah, we've enough. never had as many people living in the country with fewer hospitals. Now, I don't know who's making up that, that rule or looking at it and saying, like, you know, if you have a half a slice, a slice loaf, you can't feed three families out of it. That's the bottom line of it. The services are not there for, for the amount of people that we're coping with. And and it's, it's a matter of, you know, like, I'm well able to talk up for myself. I'm well able to follow up on, on, on treatment. I'm well able to follow up on results and, and blood tests if I need them. But there are people who are not, and they're having these tests done, and there's no follow-up to them because they haven't the savvy themselves to do it for one reason or another. It's 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 actually a joke. Ella, That's- thank thank you for your time this morning, Ella. And it's a conversation we'll certainly be carrying on into to the new year. Thank you, and a happy Christmas to you and your family, Ella. Thank you, and, and- good morning to you. Good morning to you. We'll uh, take a break. Back with more in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now, uh, welcome back. Speaking of refugees, can I play you a few seconds of something I came across last night? Um, because you know the current uh, thinking from the government on refugees is one thing and another. Here's an example of the way politicians sort of do U-turns and stuff. This is from 1999 and it features Michal Martin and these are his thoughts on refugees at that point. I would have to say that there are an increasing number of people who are casually banding around the word racist. This does nothing to foster an informed and balanced discussion of the issues. We should also have no place in our debates for the naive extremes of those who think we can have completely open borders and manage any number of refugees and those who would exclude all non-EU immigration. The naive extremes um, that we can take in unlimited number. That's, that's very interesting, do you not think, from 1999. Anyway, delighted now to have Thomas Conway with me in studio to talk about global politics. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning to you, Frank. That's a great example of the way politicians do U-turns. Well, they uh, change and evolve, don't they? Don't they, indeed. Speaking of changing and evolving, I suppose it's fair to say that Gaza has pushed uh, Ukraine off the front pages. But in recent times, uh, Putin has spoken to his public. Yeah, he's done this end-of-the-year press conference. A very interesting thing he does every year. He convenes a lot of journalists and even members of civil society in kind of a in a press room and does this long rolling. It can go up to about four hours in length uh, in which he drones on about Russia's Uh, priorities and ambitions and everything that it's got up to throughout the year. So he did this last year and I was following it and my God, the man can speak, he can speak, he can really go on and on and on. I was Obviously I was listening to a translator but I mean uh, Mm. he he has phenomenal 
length and breadth to his answers. He has an answer for everything. How does it work? I mean, is it a kind of a phone-in situation as well? Is there, there, there is kind of... You, you have people phoning in as well. So yeah. it's kind of... It's an act of participation. Anyone, anyone seemingly can ask a question. Now we... No, I, I note that with scepticism because, you know, it's the yes. Kremlin. It's probably highly choreographed yeah. in reality. Uh, but Putin gave a very... Uh, I'm not sure what to make of his assessment of the war in Ukraine. He kind of conceded in certain respects that Russia hadn't maybe achieved the full breadth of its objectives. Mm. Uh, in I, certain... I found that interesting, um, that that admission was there. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it's... It, it, speaks to reality because I think there is a growing sentiment within the Russian populace now that thinks that this war isn't going to plan, that they're getting frustrated, that uh, you have soldiers out on the front line, out there dying, uh, and that it's turning into a disastrous invasion. Now, Putin isn't going to admit that, but when we look at the facts, when we look at it placed out there, I mean... Russia annexed four territories uh, in December 2022. Uh, this time, 12 year or last year, they still haven't got full control of their those territories. They're still struggling to uh, to resist Ukraine in certain areas. The Ukrainian counteroffensive hasn't really played out to the extent that it should. It's been a I don't want to say it's been a failure. It hasn't been a complete failure, but it certainly hasn't been a success. Mm. Mm. So on both sides, you get the sense that both sides are kind of... Is kinda, there stalemate? There's stalemate. Yeah. It is ground out to a stalemate. Yeah. Both sides are kind of stuck in the mud, are kind of unsure of where they're going and unsure of where mm. this conflict is going. But everything I sense from Vladimir Putin is that he's in this for the long game, yeah, for a and, long and war. And his talk of sovereignty was, was kind of interesting because this encompasses, I suppose, his decision to invade, really. Yeah, you know? precisely. Precisely, because his vision of Russian sovereignty encompasses Ukraine. Uh, and he, he sees Ukraine as part of the, the Russian Empire, mm. if you want to call it that. Uh, he sees it as a as a territory that he, they should be controlling. And it, it's it's curious. Sometimes I wonder... Does he actually believe in this denazification process? Does he really believe that this is the case in Ukraine or is it just something to... That, that he's fighting fascism. In that some he's ways, fighting that he, fascism. Yeah, yeah. You wonder sometimes. You really just wonder. And, and I find it... In, he's an intriguing character anyway because, I mean, he's a... He was seen as a master strategist prior yeah. to this to this Ukraine invasion. And the Ukraine invasion went so terribly wrong on Russia that that, that, that reputation was kind of shattered. Uh, but he is still very cunning and he is still very wily and he is in this for the long game, I think. How many soldiers have died? Have we have we figures on that? I, I can't, the figures, I have them here somewhere. Yeah. But I mean, we're it's up into the... Three, 315,000 according to US intelligence. Yeah. yeah, so we're up into the we're up into the hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's an unacceptable figure. Any other country in the world, I think, would be seriously questioning their leader were there were you to have that level of of death in your in your military uh putin hasn't has gone unchallenged i note that he has silenced alexei navalny who is yes. the uh anti kremlin activist who is currently in prison in siberia he has gone missing at the moment at this present moment in time we had earlier in the year we had the drama of the evgeny prigozhin and the wagner mercenary group and his untimely death uh, we had that drama unfold and that was obviously 
Putin's doing as well. So we had a mm. lot of different events this year. What about the sanctions against uh, Russia? How effective are they? You really have to question them at Would this you? stage. I mean, it, it, Russia, con- Russia has built itself a war economy. It has fortified its economy uh, to defend it against against the kind of sanctions that the West is trying to impose. And I think it's done a reasonably good job of that. I think uh, for the moment, the Russian economy remains resilient. Yes. Uh, in the face of what are supposed to be crippling sanctions, I wonder can the West do more? I wonder can we impose more punitive sanctions on oligarchs and the kind of the oligarch monopoly that is in charge of Russian society? Because I think I think some people have got away lightly in that regard. It's the same with Putin himself. Personal sanctions. He's under the sanction of the International Criminal Court, which means he can't travel to a lot of different countries uh, for which that has jurisdiction. Um, It is possible that further sanctions could be placed on Putin himself and his family members. So there are numerous ways of going about it. I suppose. I'm not sure if you saw, there was one particular clip where he was kind of telling a joke but the joke was on Germany because the point of the joke, I can't remember the detail of the joke now, but the point was that the sanctions are more destructive to Germany and to the economy in Germany and to the cost of living in Germany than it is in Russia. Yeah, which is and that is precisely yeah. the thing. And that is what I say. Russia has built a war economy. It has ensured its economy remains resilient against these forces. And it looks at Europe, it looks at Europe with disdain, obviously, but the Europeans, in certain European countries, there is still that dependence there on Russian oil and gas. We're trying to wean ourselves off it steadily and slowly and surely, and, and we will in gradual in time. But historical mistakes were made. I have to call out Angela Merkel. I have to call out her decision to uh, to continue... Independence. Uh, the, the, yeah, the yeah. independence uh, or to not to shy away from becoming independent, energy independent from Russia. I have to point her out, even though I'm a big admirer of Angela Merkel, but certain mistakes were made. Certain mistakes were made by various European countries. We now have a a cohort of countries on the front line that border Russia, effectively, Mm. uh, who are on the verge of joining NATO. We have new NATO member states. Will Ukraine become a member of NATO? Will Ukraine become a member of the EU? As as we found out last week, the mm. the well, opening not not if Hungary has its way, not if <laughs> Viktor Orban has yes. his way, and he seems yeah. to be a staunch defender. Now he walked out of the room last week, as people will be aware. He allowed accession negotiations was that to start. An abstention, really. Was it, it was an abstention, and it yeah. was choreographed. Yeah. I believe. I believe Emmanuel Macron came out and indicated that it was a choreographed move that. He had indicated beforehand that this is what he was going to do. Mm. He subsequently, however, blocked 50 billion in in aid to Ukraine. So, I mean, he certainly is stalling the process to Mm. some degree there. Uh, And and just where Zelensky is concerned, I mean, you know, like his reception in America this time round, for example, big difference there. Um, Very different. Are are we tiring of of this? There is. uh, The question is, are Ukrainian citizens tiring of him? And there is... Increasing calls now. There is increasing rumours that an election may be held. Now, I can't see how they'll hold an election in, in a war, in a wartime yeah. situation. But you have the top military commander, General Valery Z- Zaluzny, who is seen as a potential successor 
to Zelensky. I think Zelensky's term ends in, in 2027 or so, so he still has a bit to go. But there are questions being asked now of his leadership. He's no longer the the ironclad figure that he yeah. was a year ago, the, the Time Person magazine of the year, or Time, Time magazine yes. person of the year. Uh, he's in a different space now, and he's finding it difficult, I think, to retain that same degree of popularity. It's going to be very interesting to see what, what uh, happens there, because, of course, without money and without the support from America, particularly, I suppose... Um, You'd wonder where, where it's going to end. You'd you? wonder where it's going to end. And I mean, yeah. if this is going to be a long attritional war, Ukraine is going to mm. need sustained financial support, not only to support its military, but to keep its economy afloat. Of course, yes. I yeah. mean, just to keep the government... Is it the Republicans that's holding this up? It, it is the Republicans, and they've tied it to some controversial issues around the US border with Mexico. Yes. They've kind of tied the two issues in together because they want to get that resolved. Uh, before they'll release money to Ukraine. Before they'll release yeah. money to Ukraine. But it doesn't speak well. It doesn't speak well for America. I think heading into an election year now, we have the prospect of Donald Trump returning to power. We have what prospect might he, what what might he bring to this situation? I mean, he said he'd solve the crisis in a day uh, with, with people around the table, you know, Fat chance of that happening, I think. Fat chance, indeed. We have to look at the EU summit uh, as well. A lot of tension around that, too. A lot of tension there, a lot mm. of tension. And I think increasing calls. We had Leo Varadkar saying, you know, both in respect to Ukraine and the war in Hamas, I think, you know, two major existential crises that are currently unfolding are, are currently uh, happening with within the global sphere. And I think the EU, in some respects, is maybe struggling to come up with solutions to that to that crisis i think it is kind of equivocated on the israel hamas war you have certain countries coming out asking for a ceasefire a complete humanitarian ceasefire ireland being one of them others taking a more uh, moderate view i think france has uh, now france has maybe come out a little stronger in the past few days mm. but there are very mixed views in it across the spectrum of the eu political leaders uh and mixed views as to where where this conflict is headed. I think there is no doubt, though. I think Israel is killing too many civilians, and I think that would be mm. openly acknowledged by uh, by most EU leaders, by most yes. uh, European and, capitals. And even some of the rhetoric from America on this now, God knows, they're still saying that they're they're full square behind uh, Israel, but they're softening to some degree and saying, look, you, it has to be more targeted. Yeah, it, America you know. and Biden and Blinken and uh, the Lloyd Austin, the the US Defence Secretary is out there mm. in recent days, yeah. really really hammering that point home to Benjamin Netanyahu. But to, to, to my half astonishment, Netanyahu is he, he, he seems obstinate, he seems oblivious almost. Uh, he wants to maintain this current uh, this current barrage of conflict, he sees it as the only way to defeat Hamas. And it may be he may be right in saying that Hamas needs to be completely exterminated and extinguished. And they look, they probably are using civilian uh, civilian infrastructure to hide themselves. But how would that ever happen? Because you're not fighting a traditional army. No. Uh, in, in Hamas. So how many people would you have to kill to, you know, annihilate? And, and uh, that is precisely it. And as somebody made the point to me, the people in Hamas, you, you have military, you have soldiers, but you also have lawyers and doctors. Yeah. You also have ordinary civilians there, ordinary people who are 
who are members of uh, or who are members of Gazan society and who have joined Hamas. Hamas isn't just a a wartime, a fighting machine, or a political ent- entity. It also provides social services mm. uh, and different mechanisms course, like yes. that. So, well, isn't it interesting that we're, from the Palestinian people, there was a lot of doubt about Hamas before this conflict, and now it seems to have more support than ever from Palestinians. Yeah, and and in ways you think, how could that happen? But in other ways, you see the the bombardment course, the area is is witnessing or is is being halted by uh, uh, by. Uh, Israeli forces, and you think, how couldn't they support uh, any opposition to to Israel? You know, how couldn't they when their children are dying? When you have this level of civilian death and civilian casualty all across the country, you know, it, it's it's impossible for well, it's impossible for us to put ourselves yes. in their shoes. But it really is a dreadful situation. And, and just before we leave the EU, somewhat, I mean, it's important to point out as well that there's not universal support from Europe for Gaza, really. Sure, there's not, because no, there's there still elements, and we, we saw it with Ursa uh, van der Leyen, um, you know, speaking out on behalf of Israel. And, uh, yeah, you know. and crucially, in the EU, you need unanimity yeah. across the board. So you need mutual agreement across the board for... Uh, for decisions, concrete decisions that's to be made. And that's why Orban walked out last week. He abstained from the vote and therefore gave gave the leaders the go-ahead. But you're right, there isn't unanimity across the board here. There are very mixed views in this crisis and I think uh, the more mixed they are, the more complicated things get. You have countries there in Eastern Europe, the likes of uh, Poland, uh, Poland, Hungary, who are quite sceptical of of, uh, of the EU's actions in in Israel. There's also a question of how much of a difference the EU can make here. We've seen the limited difference the UN has made, even in calling for its ceasefires and, and other measures like that. So there's a question to be held for... Uh, there's a question of Ursula von der Leyen now and Charles Michel, the, the European Council president. How much of an influence can they wield over, over Israel? And, and can they... Can they bring some kind of detente to this current crisis? It'd be very interesting to see. In fairness to Ireland, I mean, right from the very start, yeah. they've thrown the weight behind saying that what's happening in Gaza is, is unacceptable. Yeah, and in fairness to Leo, he he has yeah. and he said it last week again. Yeah. He has been to the fore and calls for for a ceasefire. And Michal Martin. And Michal Martin. And Michal Martin. The, both of them. Uh, and and Eamon Ryan, of course, you know, have have done have done their utmost to to stress or hammer home that point that Israel's Israel's bombardment is unacceptable. So you know, Ireland has played a role here, and hopefully, we can continue to play an active role in this and an active role in resolving this conflict. Now, we ask you uh, every week to have a look at a historical figure. Um, the figure you're looking at this week is sort of vital to our celebrations this coming uh, weekend. Will you tell me about uh, our historical? It is of course, St. Nicholas of Myra, otherwise known as Santa Claus. Right. So he's obviously, from we know he's up in the North Pole at the moment, he's preparing and it's it's a busy time for him. But he actually has a fascinating history as well. Mm. Stretches all the way back to the year 270 BC when he was born on the 15th of March there. He's traditionally known as St. Nicholas of Myra or St. Nicholas of Barry. He was an early Christian bishop of Greek descent from the maritime city of Myra in in Asia Minor. So that's modern-day Turkey. Mm. Uh, and he was responsible during... He lived in the time of the Roman Empire, it should be said. So he lived in uh, when the area was under Roman occupation. Uh, but he was responsible for a number of intercessions or miracles or or call them what you want, which gained him a reputation as a famous 
uh, caregiver, as, as a man who who gave to civilian population, who gave to civil society. There are famous incidents from his life. He's said to have rescued three girls from being forced into prostitution by dropping a sack of gold coins on their window for each of them each night so their father could pay a dowry so he right. could rescue them so from prostitution. So that's where the notion of gift giving... Gift giving. Yeah. This played a core part, an integral role. Uh, he became he became Bishop of Myra. Uh, he was later cast into prison during the... Uh, the persecution of Diocletian, who was a uh, a Roman emperor, but he was released after the the accession of of Constantine, the other Roman emperor. So he was he lived a controversial life. He yes. lived quite a a difficult life in many respects. And we have to remember that life back then was was quite difficult from what it is now. His current role, giving presents, was quite difficult. Was quite different. Uh, he had a very different role. He had a uh, you know there was widespread poverty across society. Uh, he had hmm. to make sure that... Uh, My history is a bit dodgy. Was this the same time as the Crusades? This would have fed into the Crusades through the oh, latter okay. part of his life. And his, yeah, his his uh, remaining bone fragments yeah. were taken by sarcophagus, later removed by Venetian soldiers, taken to Venice as part of the First Crusade. So the Crusades did have an influence towards the end of his life. Right. Uh, he was there at that time. But he continued to, to give alms and to give presence and and gestures throughout his life he lived kind of a a really a humble life and it it, it speaks, and were miracles attributed to him there perhaps? were miracles attributed to him uh he uh he as i said there that that intercession with the three girls mm. was seen as a miracle mm. uh he he there were other i think incidents throughout his time in which he was said to have intervened uh, uh and performed miraculous works so, you know, he a lot Incredible of different story. events throughout his lifetime. Uh, a fascinating character. Fascinating, the more I yeah. read up on him, he's worth reading up on. Did he wear uh, a red suit and, and a beard? I'm not sure. He certainly <laughs> does now, anyway, that's he for sure. He certainly does now, indeed. All right, we're just about uh, out of time, but if you were to pick one or two uh, things really quickly, what we should be looking out uh, for? I would say keep your eyes on uh, the the White House and the coming, the, the, the events there over this Christmas. Joe Biden heading into an election year, yeah. huge year for him, huge year for the Democratic Party. Uh, you have other figures within the White House, advisor Jake Sullivan, he met with Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman last week over the Gaza crisis, so uh, lots happening there as well, but certainly right. it's a big time for the White House. The big one is uh, Taiwan, though. I mean, that's a very interesting, and we don't yeah. have time to go into it here now, but I was reading again over the weekend. I mean, if anything happens where China and Taiwan is concerned, Taiwan is a centre of production where technology is concerned, and it could have incredible ramifications on the world. Huge, huge ramifications, because semiconductors, uh, microchips, essentially, a lot of them come from Taiwan. A lot of them have mm. their origin there, and it could have huge ramifications. You're absolutely right. And this is a threat that China is is increasingly posing to, to the island state, to the... Uh, America has promised to defend it, but I mean... It'd be very difficult if you saw if there was another if there was an invasion on top of the crisis wow. we're already witnessing. An invasion of Taiwan would just be disastrous, not just for them but for the planet. Thank you for all the wonderful contributions during the year, Thomas, and Thank happy you, Christmas Fran. to you and your family. It was always always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Money up here, we'll take a, a break. Back in just a moment. 
Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now it's time to talk about interior design and Karen Prendergast is with me. Karen, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran, and all the listeners. Could we look back sort of at the year and what what got most interest that we were talking about over the year? I, I think, um, I suppose, the, a couple of things, but the biggest pull was definitely people got the confidence from listening to us to tackle repainting their kitchen units. Yes. That was a huge one. The kitchen units, the tiles, you know, all the information we gave out about the right way of doing it. And if you can, if you can't do it yourself, but anybody who's good at painting could do it themselves and do it the right way, it would be to get a tradesperson that knows what they're talking about. So that was by far a lot of people got confidence mm. to tackle that job that they might have had the money to replace the kitchen or they might have had the money to replace the kitchen, but um, the kitchen they had was too good. It's interesting that, and the lack of confidence. Where does that come from? Is that just unsure it's, about it's, the process? It's, 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 that, it's not that they they're not confident. It's it's just that they're not used to doing a job like yes. that, and it seems kind of. And I suppose it seems daunting to tackle your kitchen. How am I going to get the doors off the hinges? You know, how am I going to manage all of this? Mm. Will it peel? That's yes, the biggest question when I get a phone call. It's the biggest question. Like if we paint the kitchen, will it peel? No, it won't. If it's washed down, sand it down and paint it properly. But um, in the next day or two, I did a very big kitchen revamp. Um, we actually got a price to replace the kitchen of 27500 Sweet God. And we hand-painted it. Right. And it's absolutely magnificent. So for the listeners, I put that up on my website and Instagram in the next day or two. I'll put up what Very that kitchen good. revamp looked like. And I mean, it was absolutely amazing. So we were able to take that money because it was quite a big project. So we were able to take that money that we didn't have to spend on the kitchen and spend it elsewhere that we needed it. Right. You know, so, um, and the kitchen, I have to say, turned out better than any kitchen that you could buy in. Right, so you're really happy with it. Really, really happy. And, you know, it was, and, and, and we've done so many during the year kitchens and they all turn out right. But first of all, we have to have a solid base to work at. The kitchen can't be falling apart. Right. So the kitchen has to be in fairly good nick. Doesn't matter if it's 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years old. If it was a solid kitchen to start with mm. and it was in good nick, we can paint it. We right. can start it out and we can paint it. So I'm not saying um, people listening, oh, my kitchen is eight years old, will I be able to paint it? doesn't matter if your yes. kitchen's 30 years old if it's in really, really good nick. It seems to me as well, and I'm just going by the reaction to, to the piece, Karen, is that lighting took up an awful lot of our time this one year, of, didn't we it? Had, it did. One of, um, we had, um, and the person may be listening, they might even text in, we had a slot a few weeks ago and we covered lighting mm. in detail. Yes. And I got a call afterwards from the show from the show to say, look, I'm really stuck. Can you help me with my lighting? And, you know, as we always say, lighting is very expensive and it's it makes such a difference mm. to, the, to, to every room in the house. So what I did was um, I went, I viewed the house, I found all the lighting that we needed online at a very, very reasonable cost, sent them all the pictures and quantities and they were able to go into the shop and pick up all their own lighting. And like the difference that that and, and as it happens, when I went to that house, I got a lot more right. jobs in it. It wasn't just the lighting, but I was able to quantify and pick out exactly what they needed. So we made sure that they had the right light in the right room for the task or for the need of the room mm. and um, that it was sufficient and it made that 
it made that house by just getting me out to do that lighting specification. But as I said, it happened to be more when I got there. Yes. So... It's it's interesting that you mentioned earlier on the word confidence, though, because I've often spoken to you about... I, I love the notion of paintings or prints yeah. for the wall. I never have the confidence, Karen, to go and buy them <coughs> because I, n- I never know what will work in the And house. I would say yeah. anybody that rings me, for instance, whether I'm getting a call that somebody wants to um, turn their attic upstairs into bedrooms needs to mm. put in the stairs in the house whether I'm talking about pulling out a kitchen whether I'm talking about just picking colours for the f- walls every single person I would say has a lack of confidence because otherwise they probably wouldn't be ringing me okay. or, or some people yes. would have the confidence but they want to make sure most people don't but they want to make sure that they're doing the right thing when they're spending their, their few bob but um I suppose interiors designers, if you're looking at radio or TV shows through the years, mm. you know, they think, oh, this person's going to come in and they're going to turn the place upside down. They're probably going to give me something I don't like and it's going to cost a fortune. And then what will I do? Because if I get them in, I'm going to have to do what they say. That's not the case. Right. That's not the way I work. I go in, I always want to know what the needs of the people or person in the house is and how we're going to adjust what they already have revamp, upgrade, whatever you want to call it, to make sure that they are satisfied at the end of it. So I would say definitely a lack of confidence, mm. afraid to spend a few bob, yeah, yeah, that they make a mistake. For instance, yeah, because we can't afford to waste money. No, either, either, no, no. Right? And for instance, like buying a big couch or buying a dining room table that's too big, or getting in a fireplace and you're going into a, a warehouse with fireplaces in and you're thinking what colour will I get? Will I go for the cream one? Will I go for the stone one? Will I go for the buff one? Will I go for the grey one? If I go for the grey one what colour floor am I going to put down? What colour am I going to put in the walls? It gets quite daunting. Mm. But to me it's my it's my bread and butter every mm. day. I'm living it with 30 yes, years yes. doing this so to me it's no more than going into the dentist which I have to go to today because I ate a toffee on Saturday night and took oh out my, a big oh filling my. Oh my, it's oh my. no more than going to the dentist it's horses for courses right of course it is indeed the other big one for us and again it comes up time and time again and you speak about it quite a lot is storage like is that huge huge and we there's very few houses that people buy build or move into that have enough of storage so storage is key but we're always saying when we talk about storage we talk about decluttering and I was saying that you just at the start of the show I got my my downstairs my bathroom my kitchen and my utility room um, painted the, the this weekend gone mm. by the amount of stuff I had now I have to say I couldn't get rid of any of it but I told you before my utility everything is in there so yes. like it's in my life is inside that utility you know because I have no top presses in my kitchen so storage is key Mm. And then if you are having storage, that is the right type of storage. For instance, in my kitchen now, it's three years old almost. I've almost all drawers, very few presses, because when the stuff goes into the back of the presses, it doesn't come out again. So the drawers are much easier to see everything. Um, wardrobe space, make sure that you're planning your wardrobe space. If you don't need any long hanging in your wardrobe, you don't need any long hanging. If you've already got long hanging and it's not put too much use, you can change that long hanging and make double hey, Explain double that to me now, so, a lot of Long hang, hanging is a what? lot of wardrobes would be for coats, Tall wardrobes, coats yes. dresses, that stuff. Yeah. So you'd only have one hanging space. So when you open, we'll say a wardrobe door, the chances are you've got one hanging rail up high and that takes all long hanging. Now, most of us don't have much long hanging, mm. if any, mm. a small bit. So that could be um, repurposed and you could have That's your hanging idea. up high and I would have down never low. thought so of that in For a instance, years. you could have all your shirts and t-shirts and sweatshirts and whatever up there and you could have all your, your trousers and jeans and the whole lot down there and you probably even fit some shoe space below. 
So when I'm, and especially when I'm designing kitchens for in for clients in, in kitchen showrooms and whatever, like I'm all the time thinking, because as you know, I cook a lot, but I'm, I'm always thinking, right, what kind of storage do we need? What do you have in your kitchen? What do you have in your bedroom? What If I'm doing a bedroom and we need, with chest of drawers or whatever, and our wardrobes, I'm thinking, well, what kind of clothes have you got? You know, is it loads of jeans and T-shirts? Can we fold most of them? What kind of hanging do we need? Where are we going to put your suitcase? Where are we going to put your weekend bag? Where are we going to get the extra storage in if somebody doesn't have an attic space? So for me as an interior designer, yeah, everybody thinks colour, curtains, floors, how the little room looks, lighting and the whole lot. But it's always back to the fundamental basics of does this room in your home meet your needs and and those needs are storage ease of use um enough lighting enough heat we always talk about btus with our heat mm. enough heat i mean i get such a slag I'm, i meant to say it for weeks but the painters give me such a slag oh you know this color and that color you're talking about painting but that's because my background started in interior yeah. design working yeah. for a painting contractor but it's always the fundamentals for me can i get everything in the background mostly that people don't see right for that person to make sure that they're living their best life in their home. Another talking point since you spoke to me last was how you approach Christmas decorations because it's the bane of most people's lives. Uh, for start finding the bits and pieces mm. and then they're all tangled up and it's a mess and, and then you're spreading them all around the house I, and, the, and, and the storage of them and all of these things. You had a great idea. You confine it I, to a particular I area. I confine it to my sitting room at the end of the stairs because my sitting room has an open stairs in it to, to that area and I put all my bits and pieces in there. Now it's gorgeous. I have a really lovely display but I was saying to you, in the shed I have them in two big black boxes. Mm. I'd say the boxes maybe are about six, seven foot and three foot wide. And all my decorations go in there properly packed. That when I go to take them out next year, they're going to take me 20 minutes to unpack and put up. Wow. And put up, friend. And it'll be the same going back again. So like years ago, we'd have decorate loads of decorations in the sitting room, all hanging on the ceiling and then in the hall. And, you know, you'd have mm. them all over the place. And... It's too, you know, I just think it's too much. Yes. Personally, I think it's too much. So I think if you can concentrate in one area, because for some people it will be their sitting room, for other people it will be their front hall. Yeah, yeah. And if you can concentrate in that one area, do a nice story around whatever colour you like. Some people might like red, some people might like gold, some people like white, some people like cream. Get rid of what you think you don't need and confine it down. And now, of course, you know me, I'm always a bargain hunter. At the moment, you're getting Christmas decorations for 50 to 70% off everywhere. Right, of course, so you yeah. could do a whole new team and have it ready for next year. Right. There, there's a nice idea. Speaking of uh, next year, I'm sure some people are thinking about New Year's resolutions in terms of we're going to finally do that job or the other job or whatever to, to the house. How should they approach a project, do you think, Carmen? I suppose, you know, no more than what I've said there a couple of moments ago, uh, decide what you want mm. to. If you're doing your whole house, or you're doing a room, or you're do, gutting, mm. gutting your bathroom, or gutting your kitchen, decide what you. First of all, decide in your budget. Yeah. Second of all, decide what you need. That room from a what, practical point practicality. Yes. What yes. you need, okay. A lot of people now, if they're doing their bathrooms, for instance, they're putting in vanity units because they want their storage. They mm. might even put in another unit there because they want all their towels and the whole lot in there. So uh, for ease of use. So budget, what you actually need. And plan then at least if you're doing something like a kitchen revamp, bathroom revamp, revamping some rooms in your house, at least three months 
lead time to get that work done. Okay. So if you think you're going to ring a plumber or electrician or a painter or a tiler, any tradespeople, every single person that's worked or salt is booked. Right. So, so realistically say, then you'd be talking, even if you were of decision time at this point you're talking about March you're talking you? you're talking about March if you're looking for several different trades right. so for instance if someone rings me now and they say look I'm I'm interested in doing whatever in the house and they're looking for me to project manage and get the trades and whatever I'm saying well once I get to you it's going to take me between three and four weeks to get the prices so that's to get the trades people to them get them to look at the job and get them to come back. Why? Because most people are working six days a week right. and they only get to look at a job maybe on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday and then try and price that in between as well. And even for people listening and they're looking and they're saying, I'm trying to ring this person or this person and no one's answering the phone. Everybody's been so busy because, of course, during mm. COVID, a lot of the work wasn't done. And then it just seems to have been a boom year for, uh, you know, mm. um, house renovations and building and whatever. If... If somebody's, for instance, if a painter's getting five calls a day, he can't answer all those calls a day because he hasn't got the time. Mm. So he's depending on his evening or his weekend to try and go and look at jobs and pricing and the whole lot. So just to say to anyone looking for work done, there is mm. a bit of a lead time. Right. And it can be very frustrating, but when you explain it like that, I suppose we can you, understand. I, I'm explaining the black and white. Yeah, lads yeah, are working yeah. every day and, you know, it's hard to get around to answer the phone and price the work and you might miss somebody. It's often And often it's better if you're ringing somebody and you're not getting an answer. It's much better to send a text. All right. Very good indeed. Um, if people want to talk to you, even though I know there's only a couple of days on the run oh, up yeah. to Christmas. It's um, 086 yeah. 606 9009. That's 086 606 9009. is my website, Interior Concepts on Facebook and Instagram. And just to say to everybody, all the listeners and everybody here at Tip FM, we thanks so much for having me with a great year and the feedback it's guests you know I might be down the town or going someplace oh I'm listening to you on the radio oh I heard you you said that or that I heard that or whatever yeah. so thanks so much it was oh, great listen, you're extremely welcome and look after yourself and a very happy Christmas Thank to you, you and the family as well thanks very much indeed news and information is coming up Tip today with Fran Curry with Slattery's Garage Puck On you can't beat experience with over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans we like to call ourselves the experts call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie you're very welcome back to Tip today and it is time for The Conspiracy Files on Tip today and Ali is with me and under her oxter she has more conspiracies for it. This, this, I know I say this every time, but this is fascinating. Will you tell us it what has, you're going to talk to us about this? This bit? is one of my favourite, favourite conspiracy theories and it's the most interesting and the most crazy. So before you hear this, you have to leave all logic at the door. Mm. This is the famous story of Mel's Hole. Mel's Hole is a hole that is... I suppose, deemed to be a bottomless pit and it's near Ellensburg in Washington. Mm. Mel's Hole looks like an ordinary well, but it's not a well. It's nine foot nine inches in diameter. It has a stone wall around it. I suppose people here might refer to it as a sluggera. Have you heard the term the sluggera no, before? No, never, no. It's like um, a part of the ground that kind of caves in and creates maybe a cave or a hole underneath it. So that's maybe what we would call it okay. here. But Mel was discovering, Mel bought this property in the mid-80s. 
And this hole had been used, as far as anyone could remember, for generations as a bit of a dumping ground in the community. So everyone would come and throw something into this hole. It could be rubbish, it could be furniture, old cars, even dead animals went into this hole. So Mel was wondering after a few years why this hole was never filling up. And it never, ever filled up. And not only that, but Mel noticed that whenever anything was dropped into the hole, you would never hear it land. So it made him wonder then how deep this hole really was. So Mel then decided he was going to set about to see how deep the hole actually was. So Mel was an avid fisherman. He used a fishing line and to the fishing line he attached a one pound weight and he went down the full length of the fishing line, which was 4,500 feet. So nearly 5,000 feet. And he reached the end of that line without hitting the bottom. So Mel was wondering if maybe he'd hit water and that's why he felt like he didn't hit the bottom. Mm. So what he did was he pulled the line back up. Then he attached a roll of lifesavers, which are sweets in the US. They'd be kind of like, you know, silver mints here. Mints or something, yeah. So he thought then if he attached them and they hit water, they would dissolve. So he'd know straight away. So he dropped down the sweets down into the hole as far as he could, left it there for a few minutes, brought it back up and they were completely dry. So he knew he hadn't hit any water. So what he did then, he got another spool of fishing line, attached it to the one he had dropped already. So that brought his depth to 9,000 feet. He dropped that, but still reached no bottom. So he kept going. Spool after spool went down, still no bottom. By the time he'd used up all of the spools, he'd reached 80,000 feet, still hadn't reached the bottom. Now, not only that, but anything that was dropped, as I said, you would never hear it land. But there was also strange behaviour with animals when it came to the hole. Birds, he reported, would never fly around the hole. They'd never fly over or near it. Animals would never approach it. He had dogs and he said whenever he would approach the hole, the dogs would stay back and there was nothing in the world that could make them come closer to the hole. So he also asked his neighbours, because all the neighbours, of course, had used the hole. And he asked if they had any strange animal experiences around the hole. And a neighbour said, you know what, Mel? I actually did, but I've never told anybody because everyone will think I'm crazy. So Mel said, tell me. So the neighbour said his dog had died. And after the dog had died, he dumped the body of the dog into the hole. Then he said a few days later, he was walking in the woods and he saw the dog walking around in the woods. His own dog? His own dog that he had dumped into the hole a few days earlier. Mel asked him, are you sure you weren't mistaken? Could it have been a different dog? The man said, no, I know it was my dog because it was wearing the same collar that he had on when I dumped him in the hole. Um, the only thing was the neighbour said he didn't know who I was. He didn't come when he was called. He behaved like a totally different dog, not the dog that I had, but I know that was my dog. So Mel then decided there's something strange going on here. Not only that with the animals, but he'd pick up strange signals on radio whenever a radio was near it. And also what he thought was very strange, if you shouted into the hole, there was no echo. So that shouldn't have happened. I mean, scientifically and geologically speaking, you should hear an echo if you shout into a vacuum or into a hole or a cave. So in 1997, Mel was getting nowhere trying to determine the depth of this hole. So he decided to get advice from a wider audience. Mm. So in 1997, in the US... When you have a strange problem, where do you go? You go to Art Bell (laughs) from Coast to Coast Radio. And anyone who doesn't know about Art Bell, he began his radio career in the late 70s. He only retired the early 2000s. He ran a late night talk show 
on Coast to Coast Radio, but this was syndicated all over the US and Canada. And he really thrived on these kind of out there stories mm. and out there callers. And it was kind of the only outlet for people like Mel and people with strange ideas to come on and give their view. So he first appeared on Art Bell in 1997. Here's just a little clip of what he said. All right. When did you discover this hole? Well, the hole, the hole has always been there. We've been out there for a couple of years now. And, uh, you know, the hole has been there since we've been there. It's been there since the previous owner was there. And the previous owner there was quite elderly. And I, I'd say he was there for a good 30, 40 years before we moved in. Wow. It's incredible. Tell me more about the radio signals and uh, the like. Yeah, it was strange because Mel would report and he told Art Bell this, that if you brought a radio near the hole, it would go completely static and then you would start picking up a signal from somewhere else completely. He said that one day he picked up old-timey type music, kind of like from the 30s or 40s, he said. He changed the channel then just to see and then he found, he came across a baseball game commentary but the game he was listening to is a game that had been played in 1967. Wow. But it was a game that was being broadcast like it was live. So over the course of several shows, Mel was on and off with Art Bell all the time. It was one of the most popular subjects that was on the Art Bell show. Mm. Uh, so he was on a number of times. So the good news with that is that Mel was getting some great advice in how to determine the depth of the hole. Uh, like he was told to use radar use lasers in order to measure the distance. But the problem with this and bringing it to a wider audience is that it was getting a bit easier to determine where Mel's hole was. Now, the exact location is only known by very few people and nobody knows the exact location, but you can get a kind of a thereabouts from clues in mm. what he is saying. Um, so then a day after an appearance on Art Bell again, Mel said that he was driving home and he reached a roadblock in his property. And the US military were at the scene and had completely cordoned off the area. So Mel called Art Bell again to tell him and said that this cordoning off of the area had followed after a few days of very strange activity on the property. Here's what he told Art Bell. Uh, after the show, on Friday night, I went out there and, uh, and uh, noticed uh, there was some, some helicopter activity around the property. There was further helicopter activity the next day. Uh, and so I figured that uh, clearly uh, somebody out there listens to your program. Oh, yes. And did the military explain their presence? They did. What they said was that there was a plane crash in the area and they had to cordon off the area. Now, there were no reports of any plane crashes at all in the area, no smoke in the area, nothing. And the military had brought in really heavy machinery as well to be brought in. So Mel then asked to speak to whoever was in charge. He was met by a man in a black suit... Hmm. Hmm. who told him that the land would be in the government's possession until they deemed the site to be clear. Mel said he was also told that if it just so happened that a drugs lab may be found on the land, he would never, ever get it back. So Mel then threatened to go to the media. He was told, work away, nobody will ever believe you. So, of course, Mel, of course, went back then to Art Bell with an update. Uh, he told Art Bell as well that the day the government took possession of the whole that neighbours reported seeing a black beam shining up from the hole into the sky. An elderly neighbour then, they started talking about the hole, an elderly neighbour told him that many years ago there were large stone pillars that surrounded the hole that had disappeared overnight and nobody could explain where the pillars went. So the story captivated everyone who was listening. So Mel was asked to come on again and give an update. But 
This was an interview. They had been done by phone all along. This time Mel said he was coming into studio with the pictures and everything that he had. But when he was scheduled to come on, he was an absolute no-show. So Art Bell then wondered if he'd been had. So he sent his own team to investigate and here's what they reported. Maybe my audience is not aware, but a television crew uh, went up to Ellensburg after we did the last program mm-hmm. and uh, researched this. And I'll be doggone, they didn't find the hole, but they did find uh, near the area where you were talking about a lot of military footprints oh, yeah. oh, yeah. and all kinds of uh, information that would indicate the military, in fact, had been there or was there. Oh, they would have probably seen a lot of yellow gear tread marks on the um, uh, ground. Yep, 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 yep. So what happened to Mel? So Mel disappeared, went off the face of the earth for three years. He resurfaced then after three years, and what he said was that the government had made him an offer, that he signed a non-disclosure agreement. He moved to Australia, but after three years was missing his family, so decided to come back to the U.S., despite everyone advising him not to. He again made contact with Art Bell to explain why he disappeared. When you and I last spoke, um, your encounter with those strange folks up there, you had another encounter with them, and they made you an offer you couldn't refuse. Yeah, yeah. first they intimidated the hell out of me. Uh, Ultimately, they did make me an offer that I could not refuse, and I will tell you the offer that they made me. We put together a very interesting package and a very interesting lease on the land. Yeah, you told me that they had made you an offer for the land, essentially, which was going to be, if I recall correctly, leasing it... In perpetuity. In perpetuity, in other words, forever, or for your life anyway. That's exactly. Yeah, but the story of him making his way to the studio, that's that's kind of incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. And there's another story in relation to that. Because with this interview, again, Art Bell asked Mel, would he come into studio with all of the evidence that he had so his team could look through it? Mel agreed. So he was coming into the studio for the interview. But he claims that when he was on the way there, he was on a bus, a public bus. He said there was an altercation or a fight between two passengers on the bus. It didn't involve him, but the police were called as a result of it. He says as a result of the police being there, the people that were on the bus were transferred onto another bus. And as he was walking onto that other bus, he blacks out completely. He remembers nothing. He says he woke up 12 days later in an alleyway in San Francisco... He said his wallet and keys were missing, his arm was hurting, and when he pulled up his sleeve to see why his arm was sore, he had needle marks in his arm. He could also taste blood in his mouth and then discovered his back teeth were missing. My God. So he called into Art Bell again, and then he claimed the government took legal action against him for illegal structures on his property, which are what he claims the government put there. And this was the day after he appeared on Art Bell. He said his bank account was completely wiped. He said he was being punished as a result of breaking his non-disclosure agreement and coming back to the US and going back to the media. So Art Bell then was a bit mistrustful of poor old Mel because Mel kept disappearing every time he was Mm. meant to come into studio. So Art Bell discovered that there's a no-fly zone over the hole and that terror server, which would have been Google Maps before Google Maps was a thing, that this... They had that section of land at Mel's Hole blacked out on all of its maps, both online and in print. So Mel at this stage had lost everything. Everything. So as a result of that last interview with Art Bell, he was contacted by a Native American tribe based in Nevada. They wanted him to come and help research something for them. They had another bottomless hole. Here's what he told Art Bell. They took you to it. They took me there. I was, I was not, I did not go all the way up to the hole, but there was conversations between uh, uh, the Native Americans and the Basque and blah, blah, blah. And basically, uh, 
uh, agreed that, you know, everything was as it should be, that I wasn't, you know, from CNN or the FBI or the CIA or right, whatever. Right, right. Uh, and so I went there, and uh, uh, I got to see the whole now, All right. What's there? So what is there? This is whole, there? Yeah. it's not on a reservation itself. It's actually on public land, and it's land occupied by the Basque, which many are familiar with came from Spain. But yeah. the Basque also settled in America in the 1800s, and they used the land for sheep and for, sh- for shepherding. So they told Mel that the hole had been there as long as they were. This hole was slightly different to Mel's. Mel had a stone retaining wall around his. The Nevada hole had a steel collar. And it was warm to the touch, and the area around it was very warm. But the steel around it never made a sound when struck. So Mel even tested that. He dropped a tool on the steel collar, and it was completely silent. There was no sound from it. So Mel then, along with the Basque and along with the Native Americans, decided they would conduct their own series of tests on the whole. So, sit yourself down, Francis. Here's where it gets a bit crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. First test they did, they lowered down a bucket of ice to see if it would melt. So they went down to uh, a depth of about a thousand feet. They kept some ice on the surface as a control. So when the surface ice melted, they pulled up the ice from the hole. That ice hadn't melted, but it had changed consistency. And they describe it now being like small blocks of salt. So they tried then to melt these little salt blocks over a flame, but it wouldn't melt. In fact, it actually caught fire. And not only that, but the fire continued to burn for months and couldn't be put out. So one of the Basque people then, very stupidly, volunteered to go down the hole himself to test the effect on the human body. Nobody, of course, would allow him, so they decided instead to send a sheep. So this poor sheep was obviously reluctant and fought going into the poor hole. Go on. (laughs) And it was put into a crate and lowered down, kicking and screaming. At about 1,000 feet down, the movement stopped and the sheep was silent. Those waiting then at the opening then reported a very loud hum that they say reverberated throughout their body. They left the sheep down there for 30 minutes and then pulled it back up. When the crate came back up, the crate itself was fine, completely undamaged, came up the same way it went down, but the sheep was dead. But there was no obvious injuries on the sheep. Now the Basque being shepherds, they know how to butcher sheep, so they took it for an autopsy. They noticed that the sheep looked like it had been cooked from the inside, And taking up the entire inside cavity of the sheep was what Mel described as a giant tumour. Oh, God. But as they looked at it, the tumour started to move. Ah, stop. Then they cut the tumour open, and what they found was what Mel described as a fetal seal with the eyes of a human. He said it moved across, slithered across the table, and they felt that it wanted to go back to the hole. So the creature and the people stood there studying each other for about two hours. Mel said the creature smelled like ammonia, and it couldn't be picked up because it was too slippery. And then after two hours, it jumped back into the hole again. At this time, Mel claims that he was suffering from late-stage esophageal cancer and that he'd been told he only had a few months to live. But following this encounter, he was declared cancer-free. He thinks that he was cured and that he had a transcendent experience with whatever this was that came out of the hole. This he all told Art Bell on Coast to Coast. The show ends. We don't hear from Mel again for another few months. Then he calls into Art Bell again a few months later with an update. Remember the salty ice that burned for months? Well, a local Basque shepherd took that fire to his cabin to keep warm for the winter because, of course, this is a fire that never goes out, Mm. so everyone will want it. It was in a stove. He said the fire, the only issue with the fire is that it pulled all of the moisture from the air, from the outside. His skin was dry, his lips were dry. It pulled all of the moisture. 
One day he came home, the stove had collapsed into the ground. There was no way to get it back up, so he, all he did was cover up the hole. He came home another day. The cabin was gone. It had disappeared down into the hole as well. So the Basque then claimed that they were visited periodically by the seal creature that had come out of the sheep. Uh, they also reported brightly coloured birds circling this new hole. And these birds were immune to bullets because locals were trying to shoot them down to get a better look at them. Now, the Basque also claimed that the seal creature communicated with them periodically over radios through a series of beeps and clicks, which the Basque people could understand and said that the seal creature was warning them that the ice is dangerous if it falls into the wrong hands. So Art Bell then asked if there were recordings of that language of the clicks and beeps. Mel said there was because the Basque were very careful about recording everything. So Mel then agrees for the third time to come on the show in person. He'd bring the recordings, all the photos and video they took in Nevada, as well as the ones from his own one in, in Ellensburg in Washington as well. He hangs up, the show ends... Mel is never heard from again. Never again? Never again. He disappears. Nobody knows what happened to Mel after that phone call. So, to conclude on that, I mean, Art Bell has always wondered if he was had by Mel, mm. given the fact every time he said he'd come on the show, he never appeared. But if you believe Mel, he was always stopped from appearing on the show and putting forth the evidence that he had. When it comes to the location of Mel's hole, I mean, this has been discussed for a long number of years since Mel appeared on the show back in 1997. And as I said, the exact location has never been determined. But there are many theories and people have searched for it for years. And even if you YouTube it now, you'll have people who will take treks in the area who claim to have found something that fits the description of what the, the hole maybe was. Um, but many theorise that once the government took possession of it, that was it. Nobody was ever going to find it because they could have just covered it over. So to this day, it's never been found. Now, when you delve into it as well and when you look for Mel's background, investigations will reveal that no such person was ever listed as residing in that area, that there's no credible evidence that the hole ever existed. Now, what hurts Mel's story, of course, is the lack of pictures and video evidence. He also claimed that cameras wouldn't really work near the hole, so he had a lot of pictures, but he said they were... They weren't very clear and you couldn't make out much from them. Mel, his personality type as well, he was quite scatty. So he'd say he had something, but he could never put his hands on it or he didn't know where it was, but it was somewhere. Now, many will claim that Mel's hole was a hoax, but I suppose it's worth remembering that Mel could have made an awful lot of money on this because this was probably one of the biggest conspiracy theories in the US during the early 90s. He never made a cent off it. He could have had lines of people coming up to visit that hole. He could have sold T-shirts. I visited Mel's hole a lot. I got mm -hmm. anything. He would have made a fortune. He never, ever cashed in on it. But, it, you know, it's a story that got crazier and crazier, but he was always very consistent with it and his facts. And Art Bell, even when he was asked about it, he said he tried so many times to trip him up and prove him wrong, but he was never, ever able to. And what is the notion? It was some sort of portal into time or into space? Or into... That's the theory. It could be a portal into another dimension. It could be a portal into some other planet. It could be a portal into Middle Earth, which is what I might do for another show, because there is also a theory that there is a world underneath us that is inhabited. Um, that we're not filled with this iron molten core that uh, geologists believe, but that there's the whole uh, 
universe. And that's where the Atlantans actually live now is Middle Earth. So some people believe that. But whether or not Mel's Hole is a hoax, we don't know and we'll never know. But the bottom line is, it's a bloody fantastic story. It's an amazing story, absolutely amazing. The, the only thing I, I, I don't figure is... Um, Art Bell, you said that he sent some of his people he did. to check out, but they must have known roughly where the area was. They knew roughly, and they couldn't identify exactly where it was, but where they thought it was looked like there was a lot of military activity okay. in that area, but they were never able to find the actual hole itself. All right, Barry is on to say they love this part of the show. Patrick was on to say they love this part. A lot of people out there who are very fond of the Italian. odd conspiracies. Theory, it's a strange know. brain we have. Yeah, Go on, tell me. Um, we, I always ask you this at the end of a conspiracy story. Do you believe that Mel existed? Um, do you believe that his experiences were truthful? The I'm not, there are parts of it I believe and parts of it I don't believe. I think the magic seal, as some people yeah, would call it. Yeah, I think that's... that's uh, it's really out there. But I mean, why would he make a crazy story even crazier with a, a magic seal? I don't... There are aspects of it I do believe... Yes. And when you look at the terror server aspect of it, where everything to do around that area was completely blacked out for a long time. Incredible. Is there a book? There's no book no on Mel's Soul. Right. You'll have to do a deep dive online. There is no book. All right. Well, we'll leave you back to deep diving <laughs> online, Ali, and thanks very thanks, much Frank. indeed for that. That's our conspiracy file for this week. We'll take a break back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie And you're very welcome back to uh, Tip Today, 1800-938-007. And the text and WhatsApp is only 33 Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch is with me in studio. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. You had your you? porridge. You were had my me. porridge. Ah, yeah. oh, sure, look, there's Every no morning. stopping you now. <laughs> no stopping you whatsoever. Absolutely. You're going to have a look back at the legal developments uh, during 2023. Was it a fertile year in terms of legal developments? It was, yeah? but I got sidetracked actually because. I was trying to think to myself, what would be, if somebody was to ask me, what is the most significant, potentially the most significant legal development of the century, I'd say. And I would say that it's the AI regulation that's come in through the EU or proposed through the EU. Now, it's artificial <laughs> intelligence. Yeah, yeah. yeah, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Well, we all, it could be anything to you, but... Like, it's a fascinating area, yeah. and I don't know... It's very hard to know where it's going, what it's going to do, what impact it's going to have. And I've listened to all sorts of debates about it, discussions about it, analysis of it. I've used it quite extensively over the last 12 months, and I've certainly come to the view that it's a very dangerous development in the sense that it has huge upsides but it's fairly significant downsides and it carries the risk I think of the internet because I remember when the internet started I mean I don't know if you remember but when it started when the whole internet thing you know WWW mm. the World Wide Web as it was called at the time and I, I can't even remember, was it the 90s? And I remember having a conversation. I was always into technology and always interest, 
interested in the whole concept of it being a tool and useful to humanity at large and to me in particular in terms of the work that I did. And, and the question and the debate was that the internet wouldn't work unless the recognised sources of information participated in it. So in other words, the argument was, from my point of view, in terms of a, a lawyer dealing with law, is that unless the state agencies got involved and put information up on the internet, uh, then it wasn't going to work as far as I was concerned. From a credibility point of view? You yeah, from a usage from point of view. Yes. In other words, for me using it, and I'm only looking at it from my perspective. Yeah. But the downside of that, of course, is that there's a whole lot of information that goes up on the internet that isn't in any way reliable. And that has never been addressed and has never, at least I don't consider it that it has ever been properly addressed. And effectively, we had Google who took over the whole information control side of the internet. So it raises really, really interesting questions. All sorts of areas of law, you know, defamation, you know, political questions, etc. But leaving that aside for a second. But AI is the next step on, but it is a dramatic step on insofar as instead of having Google that would you put in a question, get an answer, you now have potentially a facility to actually do more than just get the answer. You have the facility to give you a huge amount of information and put it literally at your fingertips insofar as you can now generate uh, reams and reams of, of information on any particular topic. And so that really opens the floodgates of potential risk in terms of the validity and authenticity of the source of information and as you know it leads to to me it leads to uh, questions of mm. how do we control it how and do we John because it? it presents it to you in a very sophisticated manner an yes. almost publish ready kind yes. of manner yes. doesn't that add to the issue it does it, it does uh, to the believability of it I suppose uh, absolutely I mean yes. the whole credibility issue is grounded on the fact that it looks really plausible mm. it looks really informative and it looks really correct and mm. The problem is it's not. And I've had that repeatedly. Funny, I only had it the other day when I was... And it's, as I said, as I said from the outset, it's a hugely powerful tool mm. with huge upsides to it. And But it's the downsides that I think need to mm. be looked at. And from your point of view, what, what did you discover? By well, the I've discovered any number of... Well, the advantage sometimes of knowing the answer before you ask the question is you can verify the answer. And that, I think, is a very important part of the process, any process, whatever it is. So, for example, I asked a question on uh, a piece. I think I was querying the tax status of separate... Yeah, somebody had asked me a question who was based in Hong Kong, um, sorry, who'd moved to Hong Kong, lived in Ireland, had a property in Ireland, and was relocating to Hong Kong, but the issue was that they were a couple and they were separating. So the whole issue about capital gains tax, capital acquisitions tax, 
separating couples, etc. So you had recognition of foreign divorce decrees in there, you had capital gains tax in there, capital acquisitions. So there's a whole lot of issues. But one of the questions that I asked was, can you tell me the source of your answer, please? So it comes up with the source of the answer as the capital acquisitions tax section, bloody blah, the capital acquisitions tax act. And it was the wrong act. Wow. Uh, it was it was the wrong act that they were quoting at me, and it, you know it was clearly incorrect. And I've had it on a number of occasions over the last while that has come back with an answer, a computation, for example, where it does a computation. You say, no, that's not the correct answer. When you add one and one, you don't get five. It's two, and it says, I'm sorry, you're correct. It is two, but then you, in multiple examples of asking it a question, it, and I call it it, uh, asking AI a question, getting an answer and saying, no, that's not the correct answer, this is the correct answer, and asking the same question again and still getting the incorrect answer and and correcting it a second time. So it hasn't learned time. from your input? No, didn't right. didn't learn, which we all, we all believe that it does, that yes. it's a self-learning tool. Which and is why it's called intelligence. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So and and, but there, wow, there were, yeah, but it's it's really interesting because is it only because it's in its infancy though, John? Are we, you know? Well, that's the question. You see, the question is, is it because it's learning mm. that it doesn't really know properly yet? And that would be the argument that would be made. I mean, a lot. I was listening to Altman. I think is the name of the the man that's uh, the chief. He became hugely. Everybody knew about him a couple of weeks ago when they fired him from uh, ChatGPT. But the interesting thing, uh, observation that he was making was that he didn't even know when they started two years ago. Like this company's come from. Huge, yes. uh, you know, literally not, nobody knowing anything about it. Uh, huge, everybody knows ChatGPT now at this stage. But he said that the model had changed literally in the space of 12 months to providing tools to people to learn and train the model so that you can improve it, which is along the, the lines of what you're talking about. I really am stir, str- straying into areas that are No, but it's interesting, but, but there was an element of that to Wikipedia, for example, and still yeah. Wikipedia, I mean, do not depend on Wikipedia mm. for mm. truthful mm. information. I mean, yeah. a lot of it is very good, but, yeah. you yeah. know. But you see, again, it's like everything else. It's a tool that's hugely useful, but the thought came to my mind and I know this might seem like I'm somewhat um, protecting my own patch, but the thought comes to my mind that what, what we're now going to be faced with as professionals in any particular area, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever you are, is a bar stool lawyer that looks like a robot. Effectively, you've, you've literally, as you said, hugely sophisticated mm. Uh, entity that you're dealing with now. I mean, it still is only a computer, but I mean the the and but it is inter- the 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 thing that caught my attention this morning was looking at how exactly from a legal point of view are the EU looking at it and how are they going to deal with it? Because this is a debate. I listened to a debate by no, it wasn't a debate. It was a it was a presentation by a lady on, um, what do you call that platform that you Ted, listen to? Ted Talks, Ted was it, yeah. Talks, yeah. Uh, 
I listened to a debate, um, sorry, I listened to a talk by a lady on it who is involved in AI, and she was talking about the fact there's huge bias on in the information that's been analysed by the artificial intelligence, which leads you to the next point that you'd make, i.e. that if the information is biased, how how is what are you training the artificial intelligence on if you're training them on biased information? So we, are we going to lead into a situation where the inherent bias is going to be exacerbated or multiplied wow. by whatever dimensions that you're talking about. Because she said, she gave an example, an interesting example, where she asked for, she was doing, you can now, the whole thing about AI, ChatGPT, what they're saying, and Bard is the other one for uh, Google. And Google, there's a big race on between Google and um uh, chat GPT as to who's going to who's going to corner the market if mm. you know what I mean but one of the big things is the multimodal aspect to it i.e. that they can use text visuals or whatever and when she looked at the visuals and put up the query through AI please give me a visual image of top CEOs in the US and give me 10 examples of them they're all white males uh, no Color no non, uh, you know no no uh, disparity or ethnicity no or ethnicity, yeah, yeah. nothing in it at all, which is an which is an, a very interesting. And, and that begs the question: who, who controls it? So who? Well, that's the point. You know, the, yeah, well, that yeah. is the very point to say, and this is the point. And again, I, I must be doing nothing else except listening to TED Talks. Mm. But I was listening to another presentation by somebody who was talking about the fact that it isn't the US anymore, isn't China anymore, it isn't Japan anymore. It, there aren't superpowers anymore. The superpowers are now resident in a couple of very significant companies. And now we're looking at ChatGPT, Stroke, Google being one of those companies who are even more powerful than any of these right. major superpowers. And your concern is, if that's our source, then... Correct. If that's right. where your power is, that's where your control is, where where is this going? Where Where is it going to end up? And how are you going to regulate it? And it's it's been one of the really big mm. questions. You and, know. and because we can't seem to regulate even the platforms that have been existing yeah. for the last yeah. 20 years, how can yeah. we... Yeah. I mean, you could see how quickly that will get out of control. Yeah, and we've sidestepped trying to regulate them. Yeah. We've sidestepped it. We've, you know, we haven't grabbed, we haven't grabbed the nettle at all. I mean, the AI regulation that that just as a matter of trying to maybe get back to the law side of this, mm. the AI regulation that they've brought in is they've set up a kind of a stress test of the types of. AI that you're talking about. So they have unacceptable AI systems. So the unacceptable AI systems that they're talking about, that AI is going to be prohibited. Uh, you can't use AI in this AI in these systems. Real time biometric recognition in public spaces. You know. So basically, is this technology that can track individuals? Yeah, is that facial recognition? Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's yeah. it's tracking people. Yes. You know, you see the biometrics, little color coding, whatever. 
Yeah, so... I, I, I mean, that scares the hell out of well, me. Like, uh, well, and so it should. Yeah. So it should. I mean, whatever about the law of privacy and whatever about... You know, I mean, it's it's it is it's mm. crazy stuff. But this and and then take for example, the the point that I'm making about AI not being the integrity of it being questionable as to whether it get the right answer or not. What if it gets the wrong person? You know, and you're talking about tracking people without their consent, and then you've got surveillance, mm. discrimination, all sorts of, of course. things. And and by the way, just to really scare the wits out of me, we're looking at introducing this in this country in oh, terms yeah. of that facial recognition. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's huge, yeah, there are huge um, human rights, huge sounds. There are significant human rights issues that we're not addressing with the advance of technology. Mm. We are. And, and it's a very naive argument, John, that I hear all the time. Oh, sure, if you're doing nothing wrong, this shouldn't concern you. Yeah, and it's a fair argument insofar as I've used it for years with, for example, I've used it with um, security, mm. uh, you know, online security. I said, well, sure, look, what difference? Who's going to come and hack into my mm. computer system? Who's going to hack into my phone? Sure, what have I got mm. that they want? Mm. But the answer is... That's actually not the answer anymore. Yes. The irony of it is they'll hack in just for the crack of it. They'll hack in for all sorts of reasons. And the amount of fraud and the amount of uh, internet stroke, internet phone, any technology fraud that's out there at the moment, it's frightening. As mm. to, so to, I've completely uh, ditched that particular uh, attitude that I had, you know, like my and and I suppose the other thing I mean as a lawyer, I suppose I should be much more diligent about human rights and all that, uh, any of those areas because they are hugely important and they're only really important when you find that you don't have them anymore or you find that they're being contravailed all the time, and that you're not even asked mm. anymore that there that there's now there's now a huge amount of like every time you go onto the internet. Almost to the extent now, I was just looking at it. It sounds like I'm giving out, but anyway, I was looking at um, listening to a lecture the other day, and I won't I won't say what agency it was. Basically, talking about government policy, uh, online policy, everything has to go online, and I suddenly said to myself, why? What about the people who don't want to go online? What about the people who want to maintain their privacy? Mm. What about the people who don't want to log into a computer system, go into a portal? It sounds like your black hole that you were mm. talking about there earlier. Mm. It wasn't a black hole, of course. But it sounds, you know, it's... Yeah. It, so what about the people who don't want, who want to stay with paper, mm. who want to who want to know... Or to use cash. Yeah. 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 Well, same with cash. Yeah. Same with everything. And, like, to the extent now people won't accept cash... You have to have an online account. So I had this discussion, stroke argument with somebody uh, on a, a, in a particular scenario where they were saying, well, no, 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 you're, everybody has to log into this portal and in order to avail of this service because it's government policy. And I said, so you're telling me that if I don't log in and if I don't fill in every question that you have... So why you, why do you want to know what my date of birth is? What relevance does that have to this particular facility? Why do you want to know how many children I have? Why, wh- who's, you know, mm. who mm. says you're entitled to get See, this it's, information? It's data gathering. That's yeah, what it's, it's all about, isn't it? You know? And we all know what ends, what happens with data gathering, and we know that I mean Google has made. Uh, I mean they can't sue me for saying they've made an absolute 
billions out of, of data are, gathering yeah. and that it's done all the time without our consent yeah. and the whole consent issue but I mean the the I it's nice it's good to see and I wonder has is it, is there enough there that the EU are introducing regulation by the way mm. whether it'll see uh, the light of day and how much the light of day it will see has yet to be seen yes. because because this is a steam train running and and legislation is at best trying to catch up but the irony of it is that this legislation won't get through until the end of next year by the end of next year the whole landscape could have changed I mean, AI has dramatically changed. Now, by the way, AI has been here for 40 years. AI has been here for years and years. I'm not talking about the one that the farmers are all familiar with. But AI has been here for years. I remember when digital were in Clonmel. You'll remember digital in mm, Clonmel. I remember I used to act for quite a number of people. I was lucky enough that I acted for quite a number of people up there. And I remember a young man coming into me on his BMW motorbike, which I am happy to say I'm in our fraternity of. But he arrived in, uh, he was leaving town and he was saying, John, the next big thing, and this was 40 years ago, maybe 30, but possibly 40. He said the next big, big thing is AI. It's taken 40 years for it to become wow. the next big, big thing, but it has. And in the space of two years then, it's suddenly, suddenly, it's like the new kid on the block, but it's like, you know, becoming famous overnight. AI yes. has become famous overnight, but it has been around for a long, long time. But its tentacles now are, are, are everywhere. I mean, in academia, for example. Yes. I mean, you know, in terms of presenting your PhD uh, thesis or, or, or anything, any of your essays or anything, it can all be so. But of... I would warn, I would warn people on it in the sense that, and and as you say, and you may be right, maybe it'll get more fine-tuned, but I have used it um, to gather information and I've asked it to, to verify sources for me. And what it seems to do for me is generate a huge amount of, a huge amount of paperwork, a huge amount of information massive amounts of information and I think you're going to have a whole new generation of teaching people how to ask the right question and how to ask the right follow-up question and that if you can't use it it's like everything else I suppose but it it'll be it'll be the washing machine scenario for me anyway I only know two or three cycles on the washing machine I'm I'm quite <laughs> that that puts you a couple of cycles ahead of me. I have to, I have to say. Well, I I know where the door is anyway. <laughs> but yeah. but the interesting thing about it is that using it to its ultimate requires a uh, like everything else a huge amount of knowledge of how it works. But I think ultimately it will only be useful to you if you have some idea as to what the answer should be. Should be, Because otherwise, yes. you, otherwise you have no way of vetting it. Well, I, I put it to the test because, as you know, in a, another compartment of my mm. life, I'm a, mm. a musician. Yeah. I asked it to do a biography yes. of, of myself and Muriel, mm. who, who play music together. Yeah. I wish, when I got it back, I wish it were true what they yeah. gave me. Yeah. But it was completely... I mean, it just wasn't true. Yeah. You know yeah. about success yeah. in America and yeah. successful album. I mean, as I say, I wish, but it bore no relation to reality. But really. but doesn't you don't doesn't it make you wonder where exactly the information was got from? Well, that, that's what and, I couldn't get. And over, that's yeah. the danger of. But like what they are trying to do, and again back to the point that you're making, uh, 
what they are trying to do and the general sense of what you think they're trying is they're trying to get like what Microsoft has done and they work very closely with ChatGPT and what ChatGPT have switched to instead of trying to make it and and make it themselves and educate it themselves they're throwing it out to large organizations to do it but that still runs into the same question you know mm. how much bias is going to be there will this be huge next year do you think massive I think. massive all huge right. yeah massive all right it, it and was, i didn't even get to anything else there you go it just goes <laughs> to show it was a, a dreadful year for you john wasn't it personally yeah, yeah. oh yeah 2020 was 12, a tough year 12, but yeah. sure look it's it's the way life is. I suppose. You know? I suppose. Well, look after yourself, John. Thanks for all the wonderful yes. contributions here in the well, year as well. That's it for me. Emma produced. Ali has our content, and um, Stephen is on the way with the time tool. I will talk to you tomorrow. Bye bye now. Tip today with Fran Curry with Slattery's Garage. Puck on. You can't beat experience. With over fifty years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. Oh six seven two four one 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 or slatterysgarage.ie.